emanating live from the William Howard Taft Memorial Auditorium in the Pivotal Film Tower, high above the New Haven skyline, honoring the best in cinema of 2021, it's the fourth annual Pivotal Film Awards! Here's our host, Tom Nolan, Fred Mario Ponzio. Thank you, thank you. You know what's, you know what's interesting about him? He cleaned up his act. You know, he's, he's, he was fine. And then he came back. He just, you know, wanted a job for announcing. And mm-hmm. We talked about it over coffee. Put a little opium tincture in his uh, coffee. An opium tincture? That's and good. And then... Uh, I got him back in. Where did he get that opium tincture? In our uh, YouTube live stream after this, he's actually going to eat a live chicken. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's jackass forever point two. Um, yeah, yeah, where we just, on our opium this, tinctures, this is the big, get fucked up. This is the, I was making a Nightmare Alley joke, by the way. Oh, fuck. <laughs> God, because we're doing the best of 2021, Tom. That's the best true. of 2021. We keep postponing this episode every year. It's my favorite episode. And every year, Tom, I've said I'm going to do a comedy bit in the beginning. And I never do. But God damn it. I got some jokes. All right, do them. So to our audience here, our audience, yeah. Big crowd. You can't hear them. Maybe we'll put that in post for the sound. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, streaming had a big year in 2021, Tom. Warner Brothers released their Cinemax slate day and date on HBO Max. Disney Plus continued to offer Pixar films day of release and their premiere access. Mm-hmm. And Netflix coming in stronger than ever with their slate of films, including the $200 million action bonanza Red Notice, featuring megastars Ryan Reynolds, Dwayne Johnson, and Gal Gadot. $200 million and not a single dollar spent on offering any of its three leads an authentic, genuine personality. Oh. oh. Speaking of action bonanzas, Dune is lighting the awards world up. <laughs> With many people speculating that's going to run the table in technical awards, Ooh. including Best Film Editor, which is odd since, to me, editor Joe Walker completely forgot to cut in the second half of the film. Oh, that's actually pretty good. Also, a big year for those who uh, cut their teeth on television, turning into filmmakers. Emerald Fennell won the Best Original Screenplay Oscar for Promising Young Woman. Kay Canyon got the uh, d- directed the big budget. So good live action Cinderella movie, and Sam Levinson oh, yeah. had a Netflix Malcolm and Marie. Unfortunately, Chuck Lorre's two and a half men screenplay remains in development hell. Surprisingly, though, it's not a theatrical version of his hit Charlie Sheen and John Cryer CBS sitcom, uh-huh. but instead a gritty drama about COVID pro- uh, protests. Since you know, two and a half men is the average mass of a Trump supporter. <laughs> but, anyways, enough with the jokes. We're here for the awards, and it's time to start with our top ten moments of the year, Tom. But before we do that, uh, you we got know. a special beer. Yeah. So this I is. I did it. I think that one was of those. Good. One of those three jokes landed. This is. I think they all landed. Nice. This is um, off color. It is bottled, conditioned with champagne yeast. It's an American Wild mm-hmm. Air five point five. Always, always work well together. Um, it is brewed in collaboration with Miller High Life, so it's got this great. Um, it's off color brewing. 
Um, it smells like a... But it's got this great bottle. Yeah, it's a nice Big bottle. bottle. Little High Life logo little there. High Life. And we do have glasses. Cause Absolutely. Like most years, we get a little too toasty. And so I'm sticking with the High Life for most of this. Now it's with yeah, the yeah. egg. But uh, yeah, this smells like... Um, it smells good. It smells a little like a this, sour. It, it smells... It does. It smells like anti, um, Antium, which is my number two like pivotal film beer. It's good. That is tasty. It tastes like Antium. It tastes like um, a Flemish sour. Yeah. Which I enjoy. You know, Miller High Life never, never disappoints. Okay, top ten moments, Tom. We're going to snake it, I assume? Yeah, like snake. always? You always snake it. I'll start. I guess I'll start with okay. it. Uh, I have one like little honorable mention, because it's not really a film moment. It is the experience of the theatrical world, mm. again, um, encompassing my going back to see Spiral. It was mm-hmm. my first film back. Uh, getting to see Belfast completely alone was fun. Like nobody else in the theater had been out for a few weeks and it was 10 o'clock at night. And uh, just the kind of overall joy of the sports feel of Spider-Man No Way Home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My number 10, we joked off air, is uh, the single take opening, the uh, So May May Restart song of Annette. Um, I mean, I figured this was going to, at least the song would crop up somewhere later in the conversation. It does. Um, <laughs> right. So you, that's not like super surprising, but. Um, um, but, but yeah, no, it, it, I think it sets a really fun, interesting tone and t- dials you into what the movie's going to be. Unfortunately, the rest of the movie's kind of a failure for me. I mean, it, it's ambitious. It doesn't really work. But I think the minimalism of that moment coupled with, you know, a really fun spark song a lot of energy, and it's kind of like neat introduction to the magical realism that kind of will be a net was, uh-huh. was neat. Well, you know what, though? I think more accurately, and this is not to like put down anything you just said, I think it's interesting. It's what the movie, and I think because I think it's what you meant to say, it's what the movie could have been. And it's what the movie, I think, I w- was excited for it to be. And then like within 10 minutes, it gets bogged down in Andrew Driver or an Adam Driver monologue, and then that weirdo song where they're so in love and they're just like gripping each other and grinding on each other. It's like, oh, this is so it's more like this. It's not the opening, it's more like sad grinding, sad, sweaty grinding. Yeah. Um, sure. um, but the opening, I think, is, is a lot of fun. It's good, it is fun. Um, so I think my number 10, I think, speaks a little bit to what you were kind of saying before. Um, in your honorable mention thing, mine is, and I think it was a, it wasn't the first movie I saw back in theaters. Um, that was Black Widow or Shang-Chi? Shang-Chi, I don't remember. When was Shang-Chi? September? September, yeah. And Black Widow was July. Yeah, you so when, it was Black Widow you saw. So when did we see Green Knight? Right after that, right? Yeah, but Black Widow was the first movie back. I so Black Widow was the first movie back, but it was also, it was a Marvel movie. Green Knight was the first movie, like the first real movie that I saw back in theaters. And um, I don't know. It, I think the, part of that, part of the reason that like my number 10 has stuck with me like all that time is because um, of, of that kind of like overarching experience of just like being in a place and just like sitting and watching instead of like being at home and being like super distracted and having my phone or having an, my Nintendo Switch or like going to get something to eat. Um, and so my number 10 is um, the almost the end of uh, The Green Knight when Gawain is just waiting for The Green Knight to wake up. And he just sits and it looks like a fucking 
15th century painting for a couple minutes and not much happens. And like going to the movies is like one of those places where I always felt like the most correct was just like sitting like in a movie theater. Um, and so it was like the first time that I had like, because Black Widow did not feel like it was cool, but it did not feel good. Mm-hmm. Like this was the first time it felt like natural. It felt good. Felt like home, and that I thought that was like a, a, a good sort of feel. Yeah, that was like a good um, that typified or exemplified that experience. I thought that scene. Okay. Oh, so we're snaking. So it's me next. So my number nine is something we just talked about. So I won't spend that much time talking about it. It's um, the something we get this way come scenes um, in Macbeth. Um, it is um, you know I it's we'll talk about Macbeth. I'm sure later. Um, in the podcast, um, this enough. scene, yeah, that would be funny. That, that's actually what I wrote, like, Mario turns on Macbeth. Um, this scene is, um, you know, I don't even think it's, it has any kind of context in the Coen's canon. It seems wholly, like, original for them. It seems wholly original for movies. A part of it is the Catherine Hunter like the, what she's doing with her body, but like a lot of it is like the set design in that moment, um, the choice to make the room the cauldron, um, some of the stuff that we kind of talked about last week about Denzel, like what he's saying um, to himself and what the witches say to him. Two weeks ago at this point. Is it two yeah. weeks ago? Yeah, last week was worst movies of the year. Oh, right, right, right. Um, and it, uh, it is like ominous and also like definitely not scary. Um, but it's just it. It's foreboding. Yeah, and it, but it looks fucking awesome, and it feels fucking awesome, and it's it's. Um, I think one of the like the few times, um, or it's one of the few moments in the movie where like, or it's actually not even few. It's like it's the most impressive of a movie full of moments that are like mostly in like just impressive. Um, so it's the one that feels the least like it's not empty. It's full of it's full of power and full of um, mystery, um, and it's just like there's not anything. I haven't seen them do anything like it. I haven't actually seen anything like it in in film. So um, yeah, it was interesting to kind of come upon something wholly original hmm. in in that movie. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. What's your number uh, nine? My number nine is uh, Clem's geek story mm. uh, to Stan in Nightmare Alley. I think it sets. Um, the emotional catalyst by which that rest of the film kind of hinges upon. Uh-huh. Um, in the book, it's kind of done helter skelter, kind of done oh, handedly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a real pivotal uh, moment in this film, and you know, just William Defoe's delivery of that line, and kind of even like how Bradley Cooper kind of like lets him do his stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Works extremely well. I think obviously the ending of the film kind of bumbles that, bungles that I should say. But uh, that moment is is a great hinge by which, um, you know, you get the forebodingness of the the uh, foreshadowing of what is to come. And mm-hmm. like in that moment, you know mm. what is going to happen to Stan. Um, my number eight is uh, the pool party graduation exam moment from Ascension. Um, oh yeah, did you did you end up? In the <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think Ascension's a really interesting documentary. Um, it feels a little propaganda esque to me at moments, but uh, to have all the story happening 
and to have this moment of kind of like excess and hedonism and have that be a real pivotal moment where you get like that Dan Deacon sore kind of like exploding over it. Um, I think this movie and In the Same Breath are two very comparable documentaries and mm-hmm. the fact that they kind of do mm-hmm. in the same In the Same Breath kind of deals with China's reaction to the uh, COVID crisis in the first few months and kind of how they hit it until it became too big and how they're still uh-huh. kind of lying about it. But then it has this like third act turn where it starts talking about um, lockdown protests in what could, you know, there's no lockdown protests in China, but just the idea of protesting in China versus what's going on in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Ascension does a similar thing where it kind of categorizes kind of like the Ch- this Chinese world is very foreign in terms of how they handle work and how they handle like things like even like jaywalking. Um, Did you... Um, until... Like, could, yeah. Sorry. Um, until we kind of get to that moment where you kind of see the hedonism and it's kind of like a reflection as it were, of the kind of hedonism you see in America. And I think that's kind of a more successful thing to show. It's, you know, these two worlds are the same. Do you think it's propagandist in which direction is it propaganda? Well, I, it just, it feels like there's a real heavy t- turn in, the, and maybe this is a, contra- a controversial opinion of mine, there's a real heavy turn, it feels like, in, in documentary, especially like Western documentaries this past year, of just like, fuck China. And like, everything about it. And it's like, obviously... I'm not too well versed on it, but the government has extreme problems, but it just feels like a too much of an us versus them situation. Uh-huh. And I think both of those films are kind of doing that. Mm-hmm. But I think Ascension kind of does a better job of kind of turning it to like a, this is just a problem overall mm-hmm. with everybody. So, mm. um, Yeah, I mean, because there's um, what I kept, the Ameri- the China stuff in the American factory scene with some of the stuff that like it remember we kind of talked about that and like it has this kind of making fun of everybody like when they're doing that when they're at that like conference and like they're kind of um i don't know people seem like really angry about stuff but they're also like really pro whatever's happening it's just it's it's odd but there was like an edge to it mm. and there was no like i think there was no edge to this one like it didn't seem like it was commenting on anything because every time it like seemed like it was commenting on something it would kind of like hew back into like the normalcy of it like the sex dolls part like you kept waiting for them to like be making some kind of like comment on the sex dolls but that's just like nope they're just women working in a sex yeah, doll well, factory the, the one comment could be like the obvious young teenager there has her creating the dolls that like that one shot of her Sure, but there's but like, but it's all yeah. hidden in subtext and not, and it's not and they could have shown and they could have shown they showed like it's not fucking first wave, right, right, right. And I'm not, if I could redo worst of the year. <laughs> oh, did you end up watching first wave? I mean, I got through, like I said, that thirty minutes of it, and I just knew exactly what it was. Uh-huh. I just had no, you know, cartel land from that same creator is just a doing that same kind of emotional manipulation in a way, but you know instance that isn't so prominently known yeah i'm okay i read the new york times every day for yeah. like three months exactly. um, i know what they, I, I in know the same what breath, like like comparing the two if you're gonna watch one COVID documentary in the same breath is like a much better one because it's at least telling a story you're not hearing every day right and that's like what's going to come ne- I and mean, this is like a different conversation but that's what's going to come next is like someone like making um one of those uh, a COVID documentary that isn't about covid but is about like a person, and then like you have like the COVID. Uh, it's like as a metaphor or as representation of like the entire COVID experience, and that'll inevitably be more interesting than just like, hey, remember what just happened? Yeah, COVID. Um, is it me now? Is my number eight? Yep. 
right, so my number eight is, uh, I don't know if it's a moment, but I picked out a moment just to mention um, in a much longer sequence, um, and that is when Hernan dies in um, Memoria. Um, I mean, the whole last... I really thought that was going to be higher. 15 hours of Memoria um, is one long thing. Well, so, and we'll talk about this when I do my number seven, is that like... Um, no, it's not a funny you said last 15 hours. That's what it felt like, <laughs> yeah. but it could, I think it was also, it may have only been like a half hour, but even that's really long, but it also may have been 10 minutes. I really have no idea, but it felt like Hernan was dead forever. Um, and I think one of the things that happens at the end of this movie, or that happens throughout the movie, but is really, like you can feel at the end of this movie, is like the movie just sucking you inside of it. Um, and this is, I think, where it kind of starts to do its where it gets its claws in and you kind of either don't want to take them out or or wrestle free or you find that you can't. So if the movie has been working for you the entire movie, this, when he dies and when you just sit and you just watch the screen and just like with bated breath kind of wait to see what happens, um, it is like a resting in a way that like, none of these other movies are resting. And I think, so to your point that where like you thought it would be higher, so that movie, those other two, like are the two I already mentioned are like singular experiences and are attached to nothing. And this Memoria thing is like this sucking thing. Um, all the other moments in my list, on my list is um, their elevation moments. There are moments where it is not sucking you into the movie, but it's like, um, it's... There are moments in really good movies where, like, it the sensation of of watching it like gets elevated, or you're just you're bouncing more, or you're full of you find yourself being full of life instead of just kind of like being like trapped inside of this movie. So my number seven is um, from this documentary called "All the Streets Are Quiet," um, and uh, which is a movie about. Um, the intersection of, of, of hip-hop culture and skateboarding in the 80s and 90s. And there's a moment in where on there's, um, so there's a documentary, there's, so there's tons of footage, and there's a moment where Buster Rhymes, a very young Buster Rhymes, comes into the studio of the Stretch and uh, Bobito show and just freestyle raps for like two minutes, and there's a fucking white kid behind him who's just like bursting with happiness that this is happening, and it is, it is, it is, totally thrilling this completely thrilling experience um and and everything else like going up on my moments thing is that thrilling experience it's that thing that i want um which you know i'm not as a criticism of of memoria but you asked why it's not higher it's because it's because the more i thought about it the movies that i felt closest to are the ones that had like this emotional like this emotional kickoff Mm-hmm. This emotional, and it didn't have to be the beginning of the movie or the end of the movie or the middle of the movie. It didn't have to be a, like a, 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 didn't have to be a plot point. Um, it just had to have this. It just had to have this. Like, I don't know. At some point, the movie had so Memoria sucks. Yeah, but it's it's Memoria kind of sucks the life out of you, and these moments kind of like put the life back in you. You know what I mean? It's it's it. weird. Um, that's but not yeah. a documentary I even was on my list. It just, I just checked it. It was on Canopy, and I saw that it was 2021, and I was like, I checked it out, and it was it was, it was, was a killer flick. It's like what I do with some other movies. Um, 
Yeah, so my number seven, uh, going back to the honorable mention, uh, the the cinematic kind of experience. There's two moments on this, on my top ten that are kind of like really buoyed and strong by that. And this is the first one, and this was the first moment um, where the cinema ex- experience felt so necessary for me, and that is uh, Gawain seeing the giants mm. after he's taking the mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, we were we were close to that screen mm-hmm. but it just like the hugeness and the the, the 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 size of it and when the one giant turns it kind of reaches out the hand like it, it feels it felt almost uncomfortable and and frightening and, yeah. and that's not something you could have experienced on a television screen um no and i've tried this... <laughs> and you have too i'm, I'm assuming yeah, yeah. yeah, it, yeah does, it doesn't it doesn't doesn't carry the same way as yeah. much um like i'm sure one movie that we'll we'll talk about later didn't resonate with me because I never ended up seeing it in theaters. Uh-huh. Um, but that was a moment where I was like, yeah, I need to see some films in cinemas because it's just, it was so bombastic and huge. And it had been fall like previously, like that film's very cinematic. That film is very much needed for that big screen. But that moment just felt like a, almost like a ride just because I hadn't, maybe because I hadn't seen a film of that size and. <sighs> 16 months well that's and i think when we're going to talk about this more later i'm assuming um but it also felt i don't know it felt oddly like not real but in 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 it's not real feeling like made it feel more real exactly it felt physically it felt very visceral even though it was very obvious that it like wasn't it was cgi yeah it was yeah. yeah Um, but I think part of that is is how and we'll no no we'll, we'll talk about it later because yeah. it ties into something we're gonna talk about. Yeah, figure we're gonna talk about Green Knight. Yeah, yeah. Tonight. Um, in in the same vein, it's not that other kind of movie moment I'm mentioning, but uh, it is the 1965 reveal during the dream, especially when Ellie kind of walks out um, to see the the Thunderball movie poster, the the uh, marquee in Last Night in Soho. Oh, okay. Um, I think from, you know, for this movie's flaws and whatnot, like, really establishes a visceral image, a visceral tone, a a very stern vocabulary and language to what the past and those dreams are going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think just kind of opening with that, you know, before she goes to, like, the... Um, was it the Café de Paris or whatever? Uh, yeah, the Café de Paris. Like, opening with just this huge set that it's that feels unnatural you know unnatural in its in its nostalgia mm-hmm. and everything but it just sets a really great tone and once again one of those things that seeing in the cinema like the size of it and the uh-huh. scope of it felt grand grander than it probably was did you watch it did you rewatch it yeah i rewatched it is it does it work on the tv doesn't work as much as as well on the tv but it's still from a production design standpoint, it's really pretty. has really popping, mm-hmm. vibrant colors. Right. Well, I think that's one of the things that we're going to be up against, I think. Well, if you, um, as we go back to seeing movies in theaters more, if we go back to seeing movies in theaters more, I feel like some of those... And I've got a couple of those things on my on my list that are definitely reflective of something I saw in the theater versus like stuff that I saw in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, is it my turn? Yep. Um, my number six, six is um, from Come On, Come On. Uh, I mentioned it on the podcast. It is when um, Jesse, uh, the little kid um, that Joaquin Phoenix's Johnny is charged with taking care of. Um, Johnny's actually listening back to some of his his 
footage, footage as it were, his audio files, and he hears this one that uh, Jesse recorded, and we get like a flashback to that moment a little bit. And um, Jesse is just talking about his experience with Johnny, and he says um, he might be my best friend. And this is a kid who's got had some difficulty in his life, some family life. He's well loved, um, but there are. Um, things that seem to get in the way of his mother's ability to kind of just like love him. Um, and that's like his father's mental illness. Um, and this kid gets dragged around the country by walking Phoenix. Um, not with ill intentions. He's just taking care of him. He's got to do his job and he's helpful and he has a good time and he learns some stuff and they have some hardships. Um, but it's like one of those moments where, like I've mentioned before, is like it goes through this whole movie and the movie's got this really great tone and it makes you feel good and it's happy. But this moment kind of kicks it into like another gear where um, you were waiting. It makes the it makes the feeling more complex because Johnny is our main character and it's, you know, he's the one that's literally actively learning stuff from Gabby Hoffman, from his sister, um, who plays his sister. Um, and in reality what's been happening is that Jesse has been kind of learning a little bit to um, attach these people. Uh, Jesse has been, Jesse's family has expanded. Jesse's like base for love has expanded. Um, And he says it in the most kind of like blatant, like kind of killing phrase that you can say, you know, he might be my best friend. And this is a kid with no friends and it's just kind of like, it's like a good dagger, but it's just kind of like a, yeah, it goes in and it swirls around. It's like that fucking hurts, man. I was, uh, it's sad. This movie didn't, and you know the review kind of reflects that. This movie didn't connect with me as much as it should have. But I'm I'm happy to see that Woody Norman, the kid who played Jesse, got like a BAFTA nomination for supporting oh, yeah, actor. Yeah, yeah. Like that's cool because I think he's the, easily the best part of that film. I disagree, but that's I mean actually it's not going to be reflected necessarily in this, but. Um, well, no, I because I, I don't. I think that movie works on a lot of levels. Like everything's working. It just for some reason didn't do anything for me. Do you want to talk about who didn't get a BAFTA nomination? Fucking Kristen Stewart <laughs> is out. Take that, she's, Kristen she's, Stewart. She's My number five, um, um, I guess, might be obvious, or, or maybe it's just because of like where it is. Is um, the John Peter sequence in Licorice Pizza? Um, it is, which, you know, goes from when they meet John Peters at his house, when Gary and, his, and Alana and his friends are delivering the waterbed, all the way through after Alana's harrowing backwards um, in neutral trip down a fucking L.A. or, or uh, Valley Hills. Um, and then she's just sitting on a curb while Gary and his stupid friends do, like, pretend the gas nozzles are penises and give each other fake blowjobs and then... John Peters is walking by, like throwing shit through a <laughs> through a storefront window, and then sees two girls and and hits on him with his signature his signature come on. Um, it's it's fun, it's thrilling, it is uh, wholly unexpected in the sense of where it starts and where it goes. And I guess you could, if you thought it was going to be a long sequence, um, I guess you could have. Uh, imagine anything you wanted but i doubt very much that anybody imagined like alana backwards driving down a hill hyper focused on like not not getting into an accident and like totally surviving and not getting in trouble either yeah um it's just great and it's just so much it's just so much fun it's so much fun that is a movie with a lot of kind of fun moments for sure um 
And that's my number. So that's my number five. All right, you're up. Uh, my number five is um, the revelation sequence of um, McDuff's family being dead mm. between Corey Hawk and McDuff and Alex Hassel's uh, Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a movie that has a lot of incredible acting all around um, and a lot of things technically going for it, uh, those the interaction between those two kind of elevates that sequence and it's kind of elevated also by the kind of choices that cohen has made mm-hmm. um in terms of kind of framing ross as a bigger player you mm-hmm. know, the fact that maybe ross kills lady Macbeth, maybe ross you know we figure ross is directly involved in mcduff's family's death and there's a lot of subterfuge going on so the going from the intention of the original play that you know ross is nervous to tell mcduff this to like kind of a power play with it or what could possibly be that because there's so many layers going on in that film um and having those two actors work across from each other and then having you know harry mellon kind of like weasel his way in there um and as malcolm is just it's just so kinetic Mm. and it's it's a very solid piece of, of acting um Mm-hmm. Uh, my number four, speaking of solid pieces of acting, is uh, the I Want My Mommy speech, the ending there uh, for Anthony Hawkins um, to, was it Olivia Williams' uh, nurse mm. in uh, The Father? The father yeah. um, absolutely a heartbreaking sequence, uh, a destructive sequence. And as we said before, obviously, The Father for us is a 2021 film. Um you know, this is the thing that wins Anthony Hawkins the Oscar for. Mm. I mean, most of that film works in so many ways, but this is the moment that kind of wins him that a, just the the absolute tragedy of it. You know, we, we presented a horror movie for ninety minutes up to that point, and that's just everything hinges on that, and just his delivery of that and fear and vulnerability just works in, in such a master. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um... Yeah, and I'm assuming it's going to come up later. We could talk about it later. Um, um, the father and like where it ended up on my list and stuff and um, where it didn't. Uh, my number four is um, an interesting one, I guess. Um, there's a moment on in uh, The Beatles Get Back where um, we've already hung out with the Beatles for several hours and they've already played a bunch of music. And um, it's already felt kind of odd and compelling and thrilling and awkward and all like the different emotions if you're a Beatles fan or maybe even if you're not a Beatles fan to just like hang out with these these mythic figures for, you know, when they're I wouldn't even say they're in their most vulnerable because they definitely they chose to have cameras there. They know the cameras are there. They're often playing to the cameras. Um but um, it's definitely in you, you're definitely seeing them in a way that you haven't seen them before, um, like unproduced, un, um, uh, like unvarnished, um, like unfiltered a little bit. And that means something different in 1969 than it does like, you know, it, in recent terms, the idea of being unfiltered, like no one's saying anything racist. No one's being crazy. John is clearly high, but he's not like shooting up in in the studio. Um, but then Linda Eastman comes, um, and she starts taking pictures and it has this weird effect, it had this weird effect on me and something, cause it's not like an image thing. It's more of like a feeling thing. And I kind of can't shake the feeling, um, still where she is. She starts taking pictures and then it, like the movie kind of goes, Peter Jackson inserts these still, pictures like into the 
sequence of the movie like as they happened and so they're pictures that we have if you're like a Beatles person you have probably seen these pictures and this is where they come from and it has this and I talked about this a little bit when we did our um, our review of Get Back but it was probably more unfocused um, it has this real sense of like concretizing or capturing even though we're seeing it so it's captured the moment is captured Having that still photography overlaid over that, like, feels like it's really captured. It makes what you're seeing feel real. And then the gravity of what you're watching, like, settles in over you. And and if, if you want it to, and it's just, like, I don't know. It, you f- I feel both grateful and like completely confused and like I don't know, it becomes so much more it becomes like a much more emotional film where before it was just kind of like this um fly on the wall documentary about like these four guys trying to make this record like futilely trying to make this record and like breaking up maybe or like not breaking up or getting along but not getting along and you get to watch people write music and all this great stuff. Um but then she starts then those pictures come and they become it becomes like this solid image and it's like you're never getting this stuff back like this isn't coming back you got to hold on to this stuff um i i'm not really describing it very well it's something very internal um that i felt um watching get back um and i'll talk about more about get back later uh my number 3 um is when mike um visits the beach in nine days he is um uh he's one of these contestants i guess if you want um he is eligible he is he is he is trying to gain a spot on earth as a human um he is like an anthropomorphized consciousness and he is asked with uh, by will um, to play for Winston Duke to watch TV and uh, write down things he likes. And he is um, an artist, and so he draws this beach scene. And so he is not going to be chosen um, for life. And so Will grants him this opportunity to, like, um, he says, write down a memory and I'll do my best to recreate it for you. And he recreates um, a beach scene um, with sand and water and this back-projected ocean. Um and he puts headphones on and he hears all the sounds and he just lays in the sand and puts his feet in the sand and kicks around the water um, until it's over and then he disappears and turns into a nothing. He goes from like a potential soul to a nothing. Um, and it is the best from a movie that I will talk about later. And you're up. In the same emotional depth of the moments. Um, no, not, not at all. Uh, this is Andrew's Peter Parker saving MJ mm. in Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, a combination of, I don't know, uh, what is it? Redemption for Andrew Garfield's yeah. uh, Spider-Man um, in, in both the sense of the character and also in sense of the fact that, like, yeah, this guy could have fucking nailed the role given the right everything. Given the right filmmaker, given the right—I mean, John, John Watts was it not? It's a, not John Watts. It's um, wow, well, what the fuck? Whatever. I don't Mark, remember his name. Whatever his last name was. Uh, the guy that did Five Hundred Tapes of Summer. Um, 
But I think that movie just had so much studio interference and crap. But uh, it's it's a mixture of that. It's a mixture of just the audience that I was with, their reaction to it. it it's it's kind of like um, in the same vein as Captain America catching Moldenor or whatnot, um, or that hammer, whatever mm-hmm. the fuck it's called. It has that same sort of level of excitement, and mm-hmm. it's not necess- It's it's an emotionally manipulative, easy moment that mm-hmm. everyone saw coming, but um, it is kind of that nailing the landing. Um, you know, Zendaya and Andrew Garfield work well off of each other, and Garfield nails what he needs to nail, like the kind of the weight of everything coming coming off of him. Mm-hmm. You know, after he just said like I'd stopped holding my punches, um, but it works. And the audience that I was with, the packed house, I with ate it up, and so I was there. With yeah, him. yeah, yeah. Uh, my number two um, is kind of a cheat. It is kind of the sequence from when Michael. Tells says I'm HIV positive with this is this real life leading into uh, Jonathan Larson's performance of Why on the mm-hmm. piano, um, mm-hmm. two songs back to back in Tick Tick Boom. Um, we'll talk about this movie later, but it, it, I think I think those two moments are nailed extremely well. I'm shocked as shit that Lin Manuel Miranda can actually direct the movie, mm. um, and. The way in which Robin DeJesus is Michael and um, Andrew Garfield's Jonathan Larson play off each other in that moment, like the back and forth until Michael says, you know, I'm HIV positive and Jonathan Larson guy realizes like, oh, you tried to tell me and then the leading into those two moments and the way those two sh- songs are performed very minimalistically, I think just works mm-hmm. extremely well from uh, nailing the emotional punch that it needs to nail mm-hmm. more so than I think something... You know, nailing that kind of, like, weight of AIDS and HIV mm-hmm. better than I think Rent did um, in terms of selling it. Uh, yeah, I can't disagree. I definitely can't disagree with that. Um, I think it's one of the interesting things. He died when Rent, right when Rent was supposed to open, right? He died the, the first day of off-Broadway previews. Okay, so he was definitely very involved in Rent. So one of the things that I always, like, wanted to have this conversation about, and we don't have to have it now, but, like, the idea of, like, not corporate interference, but, like, some kind of interference with, like, how, like, what happened to Rent, because this felt so much more, and I was listening to a podcast, and they're like, oh, this didn't work for me, like, you know, like, emotionally, and I was like, really? Like, because this works for me so much more emotionally than, like, Rent does. Mm. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's, it's There's a real artifice kind of saccharineness with the rent, but I don't but think But there's there. definitely an artifice here, but it's It's, it's a saccharine yeah. kind of, I like easy i think it's it's still sack it still feels artifice but it feels like a personal artifice versus this kind of um invention of what would sell to a random midwestern going to see a broadway show type that's person. probably what it is yeah, yeah yeah um it doesn't feel as open and um approachable mm, mm, mm. it doesn't feel as human um, rent doesn't. Um, mine, my number three through one is a total cheat, and I don't care. Um, You're doing all three? <laughs> mar- no, no, I did number three, so I'm doing. Oh. But I'm just letting you know that like one, two, and three. Um, got it. This is a cheat. My number two is when Maria rides bike in nine days. Um, same thing happens. She gets further than Mike, and her. Uh, she's been listening to this song. She. Um, is uh, really interested in love and the physical experience of, of, of the physical experiences of being alive and like 
related to love. And so she writes down this memory she has or this thing that she likes um, from like her days watching all these TVs. And she's, you know, goes on a bike ride um, listening to this song in her headphones and Will and uh, Benedict Wong, or so Winston Duke and Benedict Wong's characters, they kind of, they get a tree and they get these screens and they project this thing and it's like she's, and they turn the bike and when the the screens turn and um, so it feels like she's riding a bike and it's, uh, you can feel it and uh, you can like both, like you can feel the physical stuff because I think it's really smart in that it uses like really obvious things like the wind blowing on your face and like the touch of like a, a, a pedal. Um, but then the thing that she really wants most of all was is to like be physically close to Will. And so he holds her and he sings um, You Are My Sunshine to her and then she disappears. And um, we are left with just two people, um, Kane and Emma, uh, Bill Skarsgård and Sazi Beats. And uh, Kane wins, and Will sends uh, Emma away. And um, so Will or Kane is going to be born. Sends Emma away, and Emma leaves a note for him, kind of uh, uh, imploring Will to find. I don't know. He's been trying to avoid the sensations of being alive, or like he doesn't want to feel alive because he knows what he lost. Having been born. having been alive, yeah. and um, in the late so 1800s, he, early 1900s, I believe, is, is the years. Maybe, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, um, she, he finds all these things he left all over the house, and he runs after her. And the thing that she wanted was for him to perform. Uh, this monologue in a play that he he told her about, and he does, and it's uh, excerpts from like kind of uh, all held together from um, the first two, and then uh, the last verse of uh, Walt Whitman's "Song of Myself," and it is uh, totally breathtaking, and um, I don't know, it renders like all other movies dumb. Um, which is not to say that they're all dumb. There's lots of good movies this year, but none of them have like even came close to the gravity of like this guy like giving himself wholly over to this moment. Um, and everything about it is perfect. It's staged perfectly. The song's perfect. Zazie Beats is perfect. Um, the cinematography is perfect. Um, Winston Duke is perfect, and it is yeah. It's like un. It's like unparalleled. Um, for me in, in film this year. So, nine days. Was your one, two, and three? One, two, and three. I think they might uh, spoil your number one film. <laughs> can, you, can, you guess, can you guess my number one? Your number one moment? Mm-hmm. Um, are you overlapping? You having more than one from a movie? Mm-hmm. But I'm overlapping with you. It is the bike scene. Oh. Uh, from nine days. Yeah. Uh, just, just... A masterclass of the film's production design, um, its screenplay, its direction, and you know the performance of I just closed who played Ariana. I can't remember her last name that played Maria. My my internet is not working on your house, so. Um, and Winston Duke, that you know I kind of grappled with like what moment, like the the finale kind of is, is there too, but I just kind of like the interaction between um, Winston Duke Benedict Wong there and you know building up to it. 
and um, the actress plays Maria. I just think that kind of like captures the emotional vibrance of it. It captures kind of like it, it captures so many things all in once for me. It captures kind of the coldness that Will has mm-hmm. now. Um, you know, I think I grappled with between this and the moment where he kind of like Winston Duke inhales when Amanda maybe commits suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, I was between those two, but I think this moment kind of shows that uh, focal point, that that turn, I'm thinking fulcrum, um, mm-hmm. between Winston Duke's humanity, the Will's humanity, and um, his kind of uh, aversion to being a person again. And I think that's where that move, this movie most shines in kind of exemplifying that. Yeah, yeah. And because he's capable, he just doesn't want to do it until he kind of feels like he has to. Yeah. Um, that's our top ten moments, though. Yay! All right. They both have the same movie at number one. That's one. It's interesting, Mario. It's interesting. Uh, so last year... Are we taking a break first, or are we going to go right into it? I think we do a couple, and then we take a break. Okay. You good with that? Yeah, okay. Uh, so last year we started with Best Supporting Actor. This year I think we flip it and do start with Best Supporting Actress. Okay. Okay, you want me to... Uh, I'll say my nominees first. Yeah. My nominees for Best Supporting Actress are Zazie Beetz as Emma in Nine Days, Anna Taylor-Joy as Sandy, Last Night in Soho, Ruth Nega as uh, Claire Bellow, Passing, Kirsten Dunst as Rose Gordon in Power of the Dog, and Jesse Buckley has the younger uh, Lita Caruso in Lost Dog. Huh. I'm surprised um, at that because you did not seem interested in Jesse Buckley when we reviewed the movie. You seem very anti-Jesse oh. Buckley. Um, we have a bunch of overlap. I have Ruth. Ne- I'm, I ranked mine. Obviously, we do this the same thing every year. Ruth Nega is my number five. Jesse Buckley is my number four. I have Kirsten Dunst in Power of the Dog as my number three. Um, Catherine Hunter in Tragedy of Macbeth. She's just in the three scenes, but she's fucking incredible. Um, and then my number one, which has not changed in over a year, is Zazie Beetz as Emma in Nine Days. Because she is luminous and curious and the embodiment of non-existence, but like the hopefulness that maybe uh, she can turn existence into something meaningful um i don't i'm assuming your number one is also zazie beats uh my winner is ruth nega has clarified oh really that. yeah zazie beats is my two um I don't why don't them. you rank them i don't know i just never have hmm. I, I think i have a hard enough time figuring out the top five that then like doing a ranking feels weird and like there's a lot of times like they're doing different things um yeah sometimes it's hard to like yeah but, uh, no, I think both of those performances are great, but Ruth Nega just kind of, like, nails that this is a kind of an emotional catalyst and bomb in passing. Um, did I even name the movies? I named... I, I, I did. I had to have, right? I, mean, yeah. I just named the characters. Um, but, yeah, I think both of those performances are great. Ruth Nega just, like, really elevates everything. Yeah, I, I had... Um... I guess this is the one benefit of having movies like available to you whenever you want, especially if you own the subscriptions to the services that those movies are on, is that you can just watch them whenever you feel like it. And so I've like dug into like for the first time in my life, like kind of like settled back into rewatch some stuff, like as like leading up. Um, and I didn't think passing worked very well, like the second time I watched it. But I thought that Ruth Nega was like still. 
I almost I felt bad for Tessa Thompson actually a bunch of times, and maybe that's like the point. But like Ruth Nega's just kind of like exploding off the screen whenever she does anything, and like in her conflict and in her like joy, and um, so she's she's like the one undeniable piece like of of that movie. Okay, best supporting actor. Oh, we're going right to the supportings. Okay. Yeah. I guess I'll go again since you ranked all of yours. Yeah, I always uh, rank. My number, not my number knees. My number knees. My number knees. My nominees: Alex Hassel has Ross in the Tragedy of Macbeth, Lakeith Stanfield as Cherokee Bill in The Harder They Fall, uh, Robin De Jesus as Michael in Tick Tick Boom. Uh, Cody Smith McPhee has Peter Gordon, Power of the Dog. Jamie Dornan has Pa Belfast. Jamie Dornan? Oh, that's nice. He's going to get something. That's terrific. Good for him. Um, he's been, like, totally shut out. Um, my number five is, you mentioned this before, um, in your top uh, moments, but my number five is Andrew Garfield in Spider-Man No Way Home. My number six. Um, <laughs> Who is my, I mean, ranking it, he was... I was like, I need to get Garfield in here, but I was like, ah, I can't. He was just so good and so. And you know what the thing is, and we didn't. We kind of talked about this when Jeff was here, but we kind of didn't talk about it. I have like a lot of things to say about Spider-Man No Way Home. Like in hindsight, my number seven also is Willem Dafoe. He's so in good, Spider-Man No Way Home. But you could. So that's the thing. You could have done Willem Dafoe in Spider-Man No Way Home and in Nightmare Alley. I was gonna do that. You could have done. You could have done that. That's what I'm I do. Not, I'm not the watch of a call. It's the. Uh, the Brazzies. Oh, oh, oh. Um, he's so pure. He's like the one. Ex- he's like just pure joy in this movie, and that's the the best part about Spider-Man: No Way Home is the fact that like it's not his movie, so he doesn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. So he's free to. Do, he doesn't have to do any work. He's just free to do like to make his character fucking. Like sing in a way that it could never do with the Amazing Spider-Man movie. So like Tom Holland is laden down with plot, and MJ's laden down with plot, and Tobey Maguire is laden down with being old. You know what I mean? But he's Andrew Garfield's just like and gambling debt and gambling debt. Or he might not have any debt. He might be really good. He's probably really rich. We don't know. Yeah, he doesn't care about anything. Yeah, um, yeah he definitely gambled away his paycheck from this movie. <laughs> um, but he's just so light and pure, and that's I think why that like MJ moment like. Is feels so heavy. It's because of those two moments where he says, "I stop holding my punches," and yeah. well, and and but uh, like and until me. that, he's just so he's like he owns the movie, like from the second he gets it in it. You know what I mean? Until the second he turns around in that portal and is just like pointing to himself, like me, and you can kind of see his face, and you don't know which Spider-Man it is, but he seems kind of tall, so you're thinking it's Andrew Garfield, and he, you know he's throwing yeah. bread at him. He's like, "Please stop throwing bread at me." Um, you know, and he's, he does a deep sigh. Like everything's getting the cobweb. Yeah, everything's kind of perfect, <laughs> and he's like play. He responds to everything perfectly, and I think it's because he knows that he doesn't. This doesn't matter. Like this is he's either going to get another Spider-Man movie, which means just more money, or he's just going to steal it, which is like just as good. Um, but again, it's Spider-Man, so that's why he's my number five and not like higher because he's <laughs> just in a Spider-Man movie. Um, my number four is um, Rajkumar Rao from The White Tiger. Did you end up seeing The White Tiger? No. So it came out early last year, um, but it's it's the, an adaptation of, of um, the novel The White Tiger, um, and he plays this character, Asok, who is uh, the wealthy son of a wealthy um, Indian family 
and he's just he has to wrestle with being true to this guy, um, his his valet. Everything's class. It's class systems in India. Um, what he dumps on this guy and like shit eats up, like shit eats him up inside. He's very very good. Um, Bradley Cooper. Licorice Pizza Holy as shit. John Peters. Finally. Woo! He's right there. Eventually, he's got Joel um, Edgerton's coming up. Twenty twenty two is his year. Um, undeniable. Can't be denied. I mean, I, I watched so I watched Nightmare Alley again, and I was like, I do not like Bradley Cooper in this Nightmare Alley thing. Um, and I kind of I dug Nightmare Alley more watching it again, but like I think he's I think he's wrong. Um, he just seems too old. Maybe maybe that's like having read the book. I don't know. He just seems old. Um, he seems so. He seems like a drinker. Already. He seems too old to be so Doesn't he, dumb. He, he kind yeah. of feels like a. He kind of feels like he's already like seen shit. Right, and if he's that smart, is there's got to be a rough way have, to say. But. Right, no, but I think that's the whole. I think that's interesting. Is that if he's this smart, why is he doing this? Help me, like Bradley Cooper has a drink. I know he. Has, no, I know he, what you he mean. He's a drinker. He just comes previous, in. in his previous, like in his twenties, but I mean, just mean like. He, he has too much sweaty. experience. Yeah, 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 he comes in weird. Um, but he's great in licorice pizza. He just, he's in my top ten. Controversial, Mario. Okay. Do, I did a thing that I didn't think well, I, I was going to do. I have some controversy. Okay. My number two is Benedict Wong in Nine Days. Well, that's a controversial with that. Because he's been my number one forever. But oh. when I weighed it, in my mind, there was only one choice for... Being holy, so he was. It, it was like my number eleven moment, and it was like a pure cinema moment. And that's kind of why I didn't do it. I also thought it was like mixed weird from a sound mixing perspective, and I didn't love that either. Um, is Jesse Plemons in Power of the Dog? Uh, I, I appreciate that. He is totally fantastic. He my top ten as well. Is so, so vulnerable and so open, and just so again pure. But he plays it so perfectly. In the moment that I'm kind of so, I think a lot of times like supporting I things. My supporting actors, by the way. Oh, cool. Um, a lot of times I think in supporting things you kind of go to like a scene. You know what I mean? Like so, the dancing scene between Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons, right? When he's just like, when he just tells her that he's been so lonely and he just like wants to be close to somebody, and it's just so real. And he's just like, he could tell he's just like been waiting to tell this to like the right person forever or he's been waiting to tell it to anybody and he just so happens to be telling it to like the person the exact person he wants to be telling it to and it's it feels so i feel so bad for her that later her life just totally fucking comes (laughs) comes apart on her because for a second on that like hillside it was just it was just totally beautiful yeah but again the sound mixing of of Kirsten Dunst like saying like Kamir like you know the ADR stuff yeah it's just it's just is just off so as a scene I was just kind of like I don't know about this is, seems not like a very well made scene but he is so fucking good he's so good I just want to hug him and I think that's for me that's kind of and Benedict Wong doesn't need a hug but he's great in this you know what I mean Jesse Plemons needed he's, a hug he's the superior priest wizard whatever. yeah. <laughs> Superior wizard. Yeah, oh, the um, Sorcerer Supreme. Yeah. You think he is in this too? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> that's, that's why, uh, what's, you know, Bennett comes at you so mad. Can you just guess my number, my winner, and I'll do my ranking? I think. I'm, so here's the thing, Mario. No, just, just guess. No, no, we're all the discussion afterwards. Just, just. 
The tick tick boom guy. Okay. So my number five is um, Jamie Dorn has Pa in Belfast. Mm-hmm. Um, my number four is Robin DeJesus as Michael mm. in Tick Tick Boom. My number three is Lakeith Stanfield as Cherokee Bill in The Harder They Fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number two is Cody Smith McPhee. Oh, okay. Has Peter Gordon in Power of the Dog. My winner, because um, I think a lot of the changes in this revolve yeah. around him as his performance, is Alex Hassel as Ross in mm-hmm. The Tragedy of Macbeth. Um, you know, the big, the, this movie is very much kind of Ross's movie mm-hmm. in, in a lot in, in the new way. I mean, it's clearly Denzel's Macbeth's movie, but in the changes that, um, you know, Ethan Cohen made. Joel Cohen? That Joel Cohen, Ethan Cohen made. Is it Ethan? It's Ethan. No, it's Joel. No, it's it's Ethan. Why am I having this problem? Because it's Joel Cohen. It was Joel. Why did I get that fucked up? Ethan Cohen quit. Yeah, didn't you tell me that? Yeah, I did. But for some reason, my brain didn't do that. Because you know Ethan was secretly involved. <laughs> you know that's, Ethan walked in on set one day weird. and just made a face. That's real embarrassing. And Joel changed um, everything. But anyhow, uh, the changes that Joel made in making Ross such a big focus of this demanded uh, performer who, you know, knows the work and is going to do stuff with it. Especially when you have Catherine Hunter there. And you have people who, who don't, I think, do extremely well with it. Um, Ralph Ennison being one of them. has like the a green knight! I know, but like he's just <laughs> kind of like spurs language onto it. Francis McDormand's not really at moments knowing what she's supposed to be doing right and you know so so there is so much demand on a on a performer and you know Alex Hassel's a classical trained Shakespeare performer but he just nails it and nails that emotion and nails what he needs to do in the face I bet there I bet he walked into this you know if he's a classically trained actor I bet he walked into this production and like assumed that his Ross was going to do one thing and then Joel Cohen was just like, no, I want you to do this. And he was just like, fuck yes. Yeah. 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 He was just like, I'm doing that. And I get to wear the one interesting costume in the whole movie. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. You got it. It is not a costume design nominee for me. Don't worry. It's not for me either. Speaking because of which. Because braided leather best, is not interesting. Oh, let's just do uh, best costume design. It's kind of going out of my order. My best costume design nominees. There's only three of them. Because for the next five categories, six categories, we only do three. Mm-hmm. Um, my best costume design nominees: Dune, Last Night in Soho, West Side Story. Are these are these in order? No, oh, okay. those are my nominees. My number three is Dune, because fine, it's Dune. Clearly, a lot of thought went into the costumes. I may not get it, but it seems like he's built. He was built a world. You know what I mean? He fucking built a world. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, number two is Licorice Pizza. Um, because it's cool, and he built the world, and I love the fact that like Alana Heim and um, Cooper, Cooper Hoffman. Hoffman like wear. Excuse me. This this two con, two rows. <laughs> easy ale. Easy ale. It's a four point three. It's pretty good, but it's very like ailey. Um, um, I love okay, the fact it's that it's not ailey. Yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. No, two roads is not making a beer with you. Um. It's it's obviously it's a period thing, but he's Paul Thomas Anderson and like whoever his costume master was were really trying to accentuate these people's like humanity. So they wear identity, yeah. they wear weird stuff. Like Cooper Hoffman wears stuff that like 
just kind of fits, which you know kind of illuminates the idea that like he's growing up faster than he can really like process. You know what I mean? Dressed like every Jesse Plemons character. But Jesse Plemons would wear a shirt that like doesn't like accentuate like his midsection. You know what I mean? He would wear like a kind of button-down shirt that mm. kind of like does some stuff for him. Gary Valentine wears clothes that do nothing for him, and Alana Haim too wears like really I'm thinking weird of, I'm clothes. Thinking of ending things, Jesse Plemons. Oh yeah, that guy fucking rules. <laughs> Jesse Plemons is on a roll, man. Um, and Alana Haim too wears like really weird clothes, and like they never. One of the things that's really interesting is. And I thought about it a lot is is um, the first waterbed scene when they open the store and she's walking around in that bikini and she's clearly padded, right? Because she's like her chest is not that big through the whole movie, but they never talk about it. Like, and you would think in a movie like this, like, but I, I think why Paul Thomas Anderson is really good in this movie um, is that he like, there's a lot of jokes that are like only jokes if you think about them. And, like, the fact that she's wearing, like, at one point she's wearing, like, an olive oil kind of costume, um, like that red shirt. Um, she's just dressed really weird. Um, and it's, and I, those two are the, I guess, the only ones that matter. But you're right. They do kind of have, like, they do have costumes and their expressions of their kind of, like. Bradley Cooper's um, John Peters. Peters? Yeah, John Peters. Has his own identity in there as well so. sure um but he's that is told who's cost like absolutely yeah. but they're the fluidity of what they're trying to do versus like what they're succeeding doing um i just think it's really complicated my number i mean i'm spoiling my number like my later things here my number one is nine days it's like the perfect i think uh expression of the idea of like all of these people are representative of, of an idea and he has found the clothes yeah. that, like, exemplifies whatever that is, which is hard. Like, when Tony Hale, like, stands up once and, like, pulls his loose jeans up, I was like, yes, of course this guy would have loose jeans. Of course, when this guy is Tony Hale's age, he's going to wear loose fucking jeans just to hang out in. Of course. It's perfect. Zazie Beats, just this long, flowing, yellow whatever. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just perfect. It's great. My winner is just Dune. Um... Because the costumes are cool. <laughs> I'm going to be very honest with you. I punish Dune for being Dune. I don't know. I just, in my it has, list. It has its own, like... I know. It has its own cool things. It got an appropriate amount of nominations. Yeah. But I'm punishing it. Really quickly, <laughs> if, if we want to get through this in two and a half hours, we should not be, like, going... All right, really fine. ...deep into costume design stuff. We've only been talking about it for 25 minutes. Costume design? No, I'm just joking. Oh. <laughs> we talked about it, like, for, like, five. <laughs> um... But anyhow, uh, yeah, no, I just, uh, Dune has, like, an evocative costume thing going on with it. I don't really care. It's Dune, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's what it is. I don't give a shit about these categories. It's, you made a good, good job, guys. Yeah. No, wait. Yeah. You're going to win an Oscar, probably. You are Carilla. Win mon- multiple and Carilla, Oscars. And Carilla has good costumes, too. I just, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, who cares? Uh, just like Best Makeup. My nominees are House of Gucci, Dune, and Eyes of Tammy Faye. Did you watch I watched all three of those movies. How was House of Gucci? It's fine. Yeah, um, it's perfect. It's 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 the uh, hot take. It's the better of the two Ridley Scott movies. Oh, you, I didn't want. I didn't end up watching the last two. I kind of started boring. it. I started it and like I got like five minutes in. And I was like, I don't want to do this. Well, it's just it's I'm just, just fucking, not interested. It's just fucking a bad Rashomon. Well, that's I mean I, I don't need you, to you know that going Rashomon, in right. Yeah. Um, 
My number three is passing. Um, you know, I, it's, in, uh, oh, it's yeah, right. interesting. It's an interesting, yeah. uh, you know, makeup movie. I, I think um, the the idea of, like, to whiten Ruth Nega into, like, to not whiten um, Tessa, Tessa Thompson. Thompson is interesting in the sense that they're both supposed to be at various points, like, not trying to pass, but could pass. Um, and then Ruth Nega's just whole, I don't know, she has this foreign, like, look to her. She's just so, like, not sophisticated, but, like, I don't know. But it, there's definitely, like, something, there's definitely something there. Um, it's interesting. That person agrees with you. Yeah, I like that movie! Um, number two is The Novice. Um, which is... What the fuck is the not? I mean, I don't see oh, it. the rowing movie? I didn't see it. Why didn't you see it? I just assumed you saw it because you told me about it. You were like, Amy Forsyth is getting good reviews in this movie instead of like being just the sex pot in Coda. Remember? I did. I just never ended up Oh, okay. Well, it. The Novice <laughs> is about rowing, and these people are always very sweaty, um, but there's like really interesting makeup effects with some blood. Um, and some holes and some cutting and some bruising. Um, and it's really good and really powerful. Um, actually, I meant I messed up. My number two for hair and makeup is Nine Days, and number one is a novice. I meant to make that change, and I forgot to make it. Nine Days, same thing I talked about with the clothes. Sazi beats his hair, seems like her own hair, and it's doing what it's doing, but it's part of who she is. Everyone's Everyone's expressions are part of... Of who they are, you know what I mean. Everyone's hair exemplifies the like their personality. Um, not complicated, but again, you know, it is what it is. Um, yeah, my so yeah, what's my, next? My, my, my win, well, my oh, what's your winner? My winner's just just Dune. What <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, uh, it's Dune. Our, our Conan, the the makeup effects on that and everything is good. See, I didn't. I knew, yeah, we don't want to talk. About I, I originally had like Psycho Gorman in here, but I was like, I can't do that. Why? Because you it's done not Psycho it's, Gorman. Because all three of those movies are better at it. Even though Psycho Gorman has much less to work with. Yeah, I couldn't do. I it. guess that's true. Uh, best sound editing. My nominees: The Tragedy of Macbeth, The Harder They Fall, Dune. Dune. Um. My. Number three is um, The Killing of Two Lovers, which has this great... Um, it doesn't even have a score, so there's no, there's no score credited at all. Um, there's no composer credited, so like the score is really... What you perceive as a score is really like this interior sound design of like it's, gears grinding. It's like diegetic sound. Yeah, it's, but it's just... It's like, diegetic or however it, you pronounce that it word. It comes in perfectly. It comes in where you don't want it. I don't think it's not going to show up in sound mixing because I don't think it's mixed super well. It seems very forward when it should probably be more like, you know, part of like the overall sound. Yeah, my problem with that movie is everything seems like really in your face. I, I really I admired I enjoyed, it. A lot. I admired it, but yeah. I was like, uh, I just need, this needs to cook a little bit. I think more. part of it for me was that I didn't see that coming. I didn't see, a, 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 I didn't see space in this movie for something like the nature of how it was going to use sound to express like an internal That's feeling. Right. Yeah. Um, number two is Memoria for pretty obvious reasons. Um, I put it here over mixing because I feel like the sound, there's not, there's just not much happening in the movie. So the mixing seems like the, the mixing seems immaterial, 
because most of the time it's just like someone sitting and then there's just sounds. But especially with like her trying to find that sound in that studio with young Hernan who may or may not exist, um, that shit is fucking rules. We, might, we, we very much disagreed in what category we should put it in. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, and then so number two is... Or, well, number two is more. Number right? one is um, The Novice, which is just a fucking masterclass in sound design. Fucking brilliant. God, I don't remember. I remember she, like, mentioning this movie to you, but then I ended up forgetting. The director, it. Lauren Hathaway. This is why I need to not watch 20 fucking documentaries in the last I don't know week. why you did that, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. Lauren Hathaway is a – she comes from sound design, and so she used sound design to – this. the sound design of this movie is just so expertly done to, like, induce both – not just an anxiety in the viewer, because I think that shit is bullshit, but, like – expressing the anxiety of this character um, is it's just it's fantastic it's well, worth a headphone listen yeah my winner is Dune <laughs> nice <laughs> it's Dune yeah it's Dune I mean, this entire we, technical category is just like it's Dune we know what it's Dune get it yeah get it you know why it's the sound editing the fucking dragonfly helicopters and sure everything come on go fuck yourself if you don't i'm not gonna explain it moving on sound mixing my nominees tragedy of macbeth tick tick boom memoria oh interesting so i have tick tick boom at my number three mainly because of the um the sound of the band when they're doing like the performance stuff sounds fucking great like when they're when he's actually talking he's, to the audience. Yeah, when he's talking to the audience, yeah. sounds it sounds fantastic. Um, uh, come on, come on is my number two. We talked about this a little bit when we did the review, but like the way that they like integrate um, the um, recording, like the idea of recording. So there's some scenes where like him and when Johnny and Jesse are talking, and Jesse's got a microphone, and the sound kind of goes in and out of being like headphone sound and live sound and headphone sound and live sound. And it's really, really interesting of like how these two guys are like living their life as like a document, but also like they're documenting their lives. And it's like the sound kind of expresses that. And number one is the, is the novice is number one Memoria. Not my number one's Memoria. Um, no Dune down with Dune. Yeah, Dune, Dune did not win. Um, I, uh, the reason I put this in sound mixing is there, I, I said in the review, there's a real control of the sound. Um, it, at least it felt that way of where, what speaker is coming out of, how it was mixed throughout everything else. So it, it feels discordant and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, editing from a standpoint, yeah, of course, but really at three nominees, I think the other, I think harder they fall on Tragic Move after the better editing aspects of mm-hmm. it. Um, but I think Memoria's hinges upon that sound design and does it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Best visual effects. And Dune couldn't have even won that one because I, I didn't even nominate it. Get fucked, Dune. <laughs> Can't take all the awards. <laughs> Best visual effects. Uh, Shang-Chi. Legend oh. of the Ten Rings. Uh, no Time to Die. Interesting. And, and Dune. And Dune. Um, <laughs> mine, I also have Dune. I have Dune number three um, for very obvious reasons. And then I do what I do every year, which is I go... In the opposite direction of visual effects, I want like the the um... really quickly spoilers. Dune Dune wins. Oh, okay, yeah. So I have Dune number three. I have in I the. Mean, I just think it's pretty. That's pretty obvious. Yeah, but it's so my other two, and I'm surprised you don't have like my number one on your list at all. Um, they do it. 
don't know. It seems I have more value in that movie than it does in Dune because Dune is all special effects. So I have Ben Wheatley's In the Earth at number two because it seems like a very... Um, I talked about this like with Color Out of Space. Um, he's using like real effects and then like some camera effects and some like very basic computer effects. To I saw just ninety movies this year. Create. I forgot about that movie. Wouldn't have nominated it, but I oh. forgot to put that um, in there. And then, but I think that the movie that goes over that that uses like just lighting effects, like real lighting effects, and like smoke, and like even when it's dipping its toe into like a lot of like heavy special effects, but it keeps everything very in the the moments that matter most. Um, keeps everything very um, real. Is the Green Knight? I mean, that's my number one movie for special effects because all that stuff is fucking killer. Like the Green, like the Green Knight, the Giants. You know that opening when the Green Knight comes and like the blood kind of turns into like, you know moss and like the grass and stuff like that even like um the projected backgrounds and some things like i i'm kind of obsessed with like when um gawain first leaves the castle and you see like the castle you see camelot the or not camelot is it camelot what is it i assume it's camelot, camelot. Yeah. on one side on the right side and then on the left side there's just like this ruined like fucking castle and you're just like is it almost seems like they're suggesting like this this castle over here is going to turn into this castle like over here. I I considered that. It just I looked at that more into a different category than I did uh visual effects. And I the only reason it's not in my visual effects um nominees is just I think as much as I love the giant sequence, mm-hmm. it looks Netflix TV rough. But it's like but it's one of those things where, where for special effects like I'd rather have it look rough than like more Dune. Yeah, right. No, no, that's that's completely fair. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, I just feel as though there's, I, I always I'm always really unfair and compare lower budget indie-ish movies visual effects and what you can do with the fountain mm-hmm. to what like, yeah, yeah yeah Aronofsky's able to do with that and it just feels like Lowry wanted to do something bigger or a little more, but like still have that really folklore authentic feel to it, then I just feel as though it ends up looking those giants end up looking a little more like Attack from Titan. But compare the giants to like the sequence when he's in that little pond. You know what I mean? Yeah, that was awesome. Um when he's in that little pond, um, and it's just like blue and red lights mm. and clearly he's just in some dirty fucking water in the dark and they're, they're shining blue and red lights well somewhere. yeah no and i, I, you know look, at I, mean? that. And I like, look at that but i consider that for a different category than visual effects like what category lighting production design oh okay yeah let's say we don't have a lighting is that what's next what's next song yeah uh break i guess no let's do song and let's then do we'll, song let's and then break. finish our number three and then we'll break it our, our threes okay uh, i i can rank these so let's let's let's, uh, let's not snake, but I'll do my number three. Do number three, two, two. My number three. We don't talk about Bruno. Me too. It's a fun fucking song. It's I and it works so well in that movie. And that's Limna uh, Miranda. You got that. I mentioned it on when we talked about it on the podcast. I, I mentioned watching, it. I had a lot of fun with that movie. It's so light and nothing, but yeah. like it's that movie's not works, but it's so right. Pulp, like when I saw that movie, candy, yeah. fun, but it's. When I saw that movie in theaters, I literally said to my wife, it was a good song. 
I mean, the reason it's number three and not higher is because there's a bad lyric in it, which I think is unforgivable. But it's still like, um, you know, great. Well, oh, what's the bad lyric? Yeah, oh, so sorry. like they're talking about like it's right before um, the cousin says, Isabella, your boyfriend's here. And like Mirabelle just kind of casual, like really quickly says apparently to Isabel, like, hey, sis. And then Isabel like turns her and says, like, I want not a sound out of you. Uh, but it's got no relation to anything that's been happening in the song up to that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like some fucking shit that Lynn Manuel Miranda does all the fucking time, and I hate it. Well, I just took that to mean um Oh, but that's I just a, took that to be like a part of the visual act going on. Sure, so but it's like it. the whole the whole song up to that point has not has it's, been has hewed away from like um a direct narrative like thing and it's then thing, for like, one second your, he's just like she's like hey I don't want to talk to you it's like that thing in your release that you would cut out of the song and then release it without that yet yeah yeah, yeah. it's just like find or just find something else to say and that's one part of my problem with the limited on brand experience is that sometimes he just doesn't know what to say and he'll just put the word insane in there for some reason yeah, yeah. or he'll do shit like that and it fucking pisses me off and I hate it what's your number two my number two we almost lived in a world where Jay-Z and Kid Cudi Oh, you put that on your list. Award yeah. is uh, "Guns Go Bang." Nice, yeah. From that's um, a good, the opening that's a good of tune. the harder, yeah. Fall, uh, Kid Cudi, Jay Z, Jamis. It's just it's fun. It's a good it, song. It, it sets that tone for yeah. that film. Um, I didn't watch the movie, but I listened to the song, and it's quality tune. My kids liked it. They mm. got they got down. I don't like the Jay Z part of it at all, but I like the Kid Cudi well, and so, James Samuel. Like, I'm guessing James Samuel is the one that kind of did the beat and probably the lyrics. I'm guessing. I don't but, know. Um. Who's James Samuel? But the guy directed and wrote. Uh, oh, okay, so he did. He he. Or maybe he's, he's well, also maybe he's originally he's a, he's a musician too. Oh yeah, he probably was just there. So, yeah, probably part of the production. Mine is. Um, I struggled with this in Mario, and I had to put it in someplace, and it ended up being on my, on my list twice. Um, but I felt like it was necessary to include this movie here. And I wasn't sure what song it was going to be, and I went through a bunch of different iterations of like choosing the song. But I think I I finally settled on the song, and it is from Bo Burnham's Inside, and it is content because I think it's the one that he wrote probably for this, and I think it's the one that best expresses the ideas in the film the best. It's funny, but it's also kind of dark, and it also kind of hates anyone that's listening to it. Um. And it seems to be like the, like a true expression of something where like a lot of the other songs seem to be like kind of um, homages to to like a sound, you know what I mean, um, or to a style, like a pastiche. Um, and this one seems like an honest expression of something. Um, and so, Bo Burnham's content. I was I just, I struggled with that movie. I, I definitely didn't look at it at all for song, because mm-hmm. I was like, nah, it feels like a cheat. Um, I only really considered it for moments. Mm. But which moment would it have been? Um, I did too. Uh, what you call it? Um, comedy would have been my. Oh, okay, my mine was thirty because of the like just how we did the lighting and stuff like that with like, yeah. the the flashlight See, behind I him. Think, and I shit. think comedy is just a good mix of like production design. Mm-hmm. Is, is the most like film moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, can you can you can you guess my number one? No. Oh. How so, would I guess? I I thought from my moments <laughs> you would have been able to guess it. So maybe we start. Oh okay. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course I can guess. I'm sorry. Um, 
Yeah, that was on like my long list, which was like only like six, listened to, six songs I, so long. I like looked at songs and I like listened to that song separate from that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I really dig this fucking song. And then I like watched and I watched rewatched the movie and I was like, mm. I hate this movie, except for like that opening. Yeah, and that like works for the movie and it's doing like all the heavy it and Simon Hilberg. Who was also on my short list for supporting actor? I was gonna say I'm surprised he wasn't on there. Yeah, he was just top ten. Just he was missed. In the top 10. Yeah. yeah. Um, did so much heavy lifting for that movie, mm-hmm. and so like it's it's there. Yeah, my um, it's a good song. I considered it. My number one though is gotta be uh, "Mercy of Man," which is the song that the card counter ends with. With Oscar Isaac and Tiffany Haddish with their fingers fucking pressed against the glass, like him coming out of the fucking jail and the song, this like Jesus and Mary chain meets fucking slow new order song just starts fucking pumping. And Paul Schrader's just like, this is going to be the end of my movie. I didn't realize that was an original song. Yeah. The whole score is original. Huh. And the, he made a whole album of original songs. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about Bruno by not made by this. Did that happen? Oh, okay. Happen, but, um, uh, no, I still think probably would have. Cause it doesn't, Add as much to the yeah that probably would have been there before. It adds in the sense that card counter just did it didn't work for me. Oh, I love it. Like, it's it's this is good. No, no, I I think I expected too much from it. When I ended up watching it. Mm. Mm. Was you know my first big like Paul Schrader thing of like knowing Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader mm-hmm. was a uh, first reform, so it probably just. Well, it's definitely not first reformed, but it's. I think it's. I think it's dirtier than first yeah. reformed i think it's like um rougher like no, than first sure. reformed which i think is interesting but i think just like the mercy of man is he's he you know robert levon beam wrote wrote all these songs and he was just like i'm gonna fucking i'm not even gonna have them say anything i'm just gonna fucking end this movie with these two like standing here doing this uh, with a song playing and i thought it was a perfect expression of what had come before with the score and with like the aesthetic and um what came after so um all right we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll come back with like the meat the meat of our list minus the sporting actors which is already which is meaty we are but we already did that all right we'll be right back moving on now to the better part of music that is best original score uh my nominees Carter Burwell, The Tragedy of Macbeth, Johnny Greenwood for Spencer. Oh, Daniel, oh the other one. Daniel Hart for The Green Knight. Uh-huh. Robert uh, Aki and Aubrey Lowe for Candyman. And Dan Deacon for Ascension. Mm. Um, Get fucked, Dune. <laughs> Hans Zimmer, go fuck yourself. That, the soundtrack is not interesting. I mean, it works in the yeah, movie. He's going to win the like, Oscars. Whenever. Like, why is that? Why is that? Like the winner. That makes me sad. It makes me sad that Johnny Greenwood can't like squeak one of these out. Yeah, I know. I mean, maybe he will. I don't know. My, I, so I can see him sneaking in. My number five is the Johnny Greenwood that you. Um, so the other Johnny Greenwood's Power of the Dog. I don't feel great about it. I uh, like he have three or just two this year. I think he just said the two. Okay. Right. I mean, maybe he had another one. Oh no, he did the one for um, Licorice Pizza. Did he do Licorice Pizza? Okay, yeah. I remember if he did Licorice Pizza. But there's just not a lot of score no, in Licorice not, Pizza. Yeah. Um, I don't feel great about it. I, I think it's it's very workmanlike. I think part of the problem that I'm having here, Mario, is that in 2017, Johnny Greenwood hit a level, or 2000, 
17, 18, he hit a level like that's kind of I think he's gonna have trouble surpassing in Phantom Thread and you were never really here. You know what mm. I mean? Is that like he's gonna keep doing work and it's always gonna be good. And this is good, but it's just not like I don't know. He's just not hitting those those peaks anymore. I think he just needs to find a I don't know if he he I needs cared to, as much emotionally about these projects. Maybe, maybe. Um my number four is um um the so uh, Johan Johansson, this um, you know, he uh, the composer. The movie he before he died, yeah, yeah. Did you see? Did you watch it? Oh, Last and First Men. Um, it's very, very good. But he did the score for that, and the score is really so. It's just, and we'll talk about it now because I'm going to mention it again later. Um, it is just uh, black and white photography of. Um, World War II monuments in Czechoslovakia, I believe, or Yugoslavia, one of those. And um, but it's an adaptation of a 1930s science fiction novel narrated by Tilda Swinton. And so the score, really, and she's just doing kind of like she's not doing any dialogue. So the score of this movie really becomes the dialogue. So it's like this functional score. It's Johan Johansson, so it's fucking great. My number three is Robert Levon Bean, The Card Counter. Um, it's all, it's, you know, so electronic, but also, like, seems, it's so cold, which it's like, it, so it mirrors, like, the character's, like, inner being. But it's, but it also sounds modern. So I think it's, it kind of, it's like the, the casino, casino versus Abu Ghraib thing. And mm-hmm. it is rough and is, like, you know, atmospheric. My number, Two is from The Streets Are All Quiet, uh, Large Professor. He is a rapper, DJ. Um, so this whole movie, you know, there's lots of rapping in it. Um, but the whole thing has this, like, underscore of these beats. And they're fucking propulsive and amazing and so much fucking fun. Um, I want to get the soundtrack on vinyl, but they don't have it um, out on vinyl yet, probably because it's, the movie's out on Canopy. Um, and then... My number, my number one is Nine Days, because was that Antonio, right? Yeah, Pintos? Pinto. Pinto. Yeah. yeah, who is just a who's, who's, that's my six. Yeah, he's. I mean, we talked about this when we originally talked about the thing, the fact that he integrated that violin piece. That's just score, and that's yep. integrated out through the whole movie, and it's so emotional and and powerful, and um, they just attach so much to it. Um, I don't know. It's like a Marvel. That whole movie's great. I really like that movie. It's weird that you're number 10. <laughs> There's a, my internal now, backlash. Now I know what 2020 felt like. Mm. <laughs> uh, predictions? Yeah, it's so, this is what we were talking about downstairs. Yeah. Like, I want to predict the zag, but I don't think that's probably accurate. The, 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 uh, just predict... Carter Burwell. Carter Burwell. Tragedy of Macbeth. Yes! Um, is yeah no just that that score so evocative with the emotion that needs to be done in that film I typically don't think Carter Burwell does an amazing job he I think he's that like, interesting he's he's workmanlike yeah but I think yeah this yeah, time, yeah like I think he he does well but he doesn't like blow your socks off no I think he I think sells some of those scenes yeah but but in Tragedy Macbeth like and I think he typically sells scenes but in Tragedy Macbeth sometimes. The emotion of the scene relies on him, mm. and I think he nails it. Yeah, I agree with you. 
Uh, what's next? Best production design. I do not have the people down because I wasn't going to do that. I did not do that either. Uh, my nominees: Nine Days, The Green Knight, Last Night in So Last Night in Soho. Uh, I wrote Last Night of Soho. That is a different movie. <laughs> Nightmare Alley and The Tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, interesting. Um, okay, I have Passing as my number Get five. Get fucked, Dune. Get fucked, Dune. Yeah. Dude, it's hard to say Dune's... I mean, the brutalist architecture is, like, I guess a choice, but it's also, like, a really easy way out of doing anything. And then everything else is just CGI, right? Sometimes it's so hard. Yeah, I guess sometimes it's hard. Um, I have have passing. Um, Interesting. um, I just think they make a lot of choices with, like, set design and things like that. Um, With, like, the use of windows, the brownstones. You know, some of that stuff is, is... uh, just kind of part of this part of the scenery, but mm-hmm. it's I, I always think of production design and like how they use it. Um, my number four is a card counter, specifically because of um, the everything wrapped in white sheet scenes, and you're just like, what the fuck is this? But you get you can feel why. Although I'm not sure I've ever been able to attach like a like a rational reason to it or like a narrative reason to it. He just like doesn't want to be stimulated by anything. So he carries around these suitcases of sheets and wraps his whole room in the fucking white sheets. But it's fucking killer to look at. Um, and he's just like sitting there in his underwear writing. Um, it's amazing. But I don't, again, I'm not sure I get it. But it like it worked. Um, my number... I'm surprised this is not on your list. My number three is Boiling Point. Um... I mean, that's a restaurant. Maybe it's just a restaurant. But, like, I, one of the things I always appreciate with the production design is the fact that I know how everything works in it. So if someone goes into the back, I know what's in the back and where they can come out um, and where everyone's going and, like, where everybody is. And I think that's really interesting. My number two is Bo Burnham's Inside because I think whether it's phony or not, I think it works in evoking that kind of, like, claustrophobic depression that like a lot of people were probably feeling during um, COVID and then my number one is Nine Days because why of course it's Nine Days we'll, we'll talk about that <laughs> um, prediction also Nine Days it is Tragedy Macbeth you like that movie I do, uh, but if, if you remember, during our review of Tragedy Macbeth, I talked about so much about how evocative yeah. the imagery and its production design was, um, using Edward Gordon Craig's, um, you know, blocky, modernist, brutalist, as it were. But I think it's used uh, to different effect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, effect. Uh, the choices by which to paint those sets in shades of gray and black and white, just mm-hmm. so it pops better in black and white. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think from a technical standpoint, this and Dune are kind of like the big movies that were just doing a lot of work. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it works. Uh, my my number two is Green Knight, but my number three is, is, is Nine Days. <laughs> um, my number four is also Last Night in Soho. My number five is, is Nightmare Alley. They should do a they should do a reverse. I can actually rank those. They should do a reverse Nightmare Alley. Nightmare Alley release a color version of Macbeth. Just like how Nightmare oh, Alley is released a black like, and white oh version. Like, what is this? <laughs> this is so terrible looking. <laughs> but but there's, there's so much emotion that needs to be provided through images. Like the door handle being the dagger. Oh, yeah. The ten fingers in the dagger sequence. Like, yeah, there's yeah, so yeah. much stuff. Uh, the, the choosing to have Dunshire Woods come in through leaves. Like mm-hmm. Maybe more of a cinematography thing. 
But um, no, it's it's all production it's all, design, but yeah, it's, it's all stage and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, documentary. Oh, I only have one. three nominees. So what's your three? Do your three. My three nominees are The Beatles Get Back, mm-hmm. uh, Fia Dia, mm-hmm. and Ascension. I have two of those on my list. Um, my number five is Summer of Soul. I fucking could not get it. It's, it's so boring. It's good. It's, you know, but I think it's, I'm not sure that a lot of work is getting done, but I really enjoyed the performances. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's why that's where I stood. I was like, "Oh, this is great, like concert piece." But like, what what am I watching? I think the Talking Heads aspect of it is um, very easy. Yeah, lazy. Um, it's effective. He's making. He's I will say, like, making the appropriate conclusions. We talked about this off air, but this was the year we kind of expected documentaries to struggle because a lot of work probably would have been done in 2020, mm. where you really couldn't mm. do the work that needed to be. Yeah. Done. Um, so, but it's but like I enjoyed it, like I enjoyed I enjoyed the performances, like you know um, the Staples and um, Mahela Jackson and yeah, like I did, Gladys I Knight and Sly Stone. I didn't dislike it at all. I just didn't think it was doing anything. Yeah, um, all the streets are quiet is my number four. Um, it's super fun. Jeremy Elkin directed it. Um, it's, it's only on Canopy. No, I'm sure you can get it other places. Um, but that's where I kind of that's where I first saw it. Um, it's just a lot of fun if you like rap and skateboarding, and just thinking about culture. Um, it it's. I do not like skateboarding. What? I do not like skateboarding. I don't really like skateboarding either, but it's so early. It's it's a different kind of skateboarding. So it's like so that new so it's New York City, and so that time then was when like Larry Clark was around. So this is like pre Larry Clark and into kids. So kids is kind of like the end of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because all these people have so much affection for everything that's happening. My number three is uh, Faya Day and Jessica Bashir. Um, I don't even know what that movie is, but it's fucking amazing. I mean, but it's inc- it's incredible. Um, my number two is Torn, um, Max Lowe. Um, actually, just released on Disney Plus yesterday. Um, but it's a National Geographic movie about a climber, Alex Lowe, who died uh, in Thailand? No. Thailand? Singapore? One of those places. Um, on a skiing exposition, um, expedition. He's, He's a, climber. a professional climber. Um, you know, like a thrill seeker. But it kind of asks the question. It actually answers the fucking question that Free Solo, like just kind of touched on which is like what do you do if you have a family and you're one of these people um you know and i i think uh, free solo and like the rescue i think the rescue i think cast some doubts onto like the veracity of free solo not which is not to say that like he didn't climb that stuff but like um the the appearance of the girlfriend like and all of a sudden there's like all of a sudden out of nowhere there's like stakes to him climbing this mountain and it's supposed to just be this girlfriend this guy had a family at home and still like chose to like um pursue this lifestyle and he died and so it's really this movie about it's about him but it's also about his son who directed the movie like process and his other two sons processing is so his brother this guy's brothers maxwell's brothers processing the grief of having like your dad ripped out from under you and then having your dad replaced and like what that feels like that your dad almost chose to your dad almost chose to die over like being your dad 
Um, but the dad, Alex Lowe, struggles with that. And so there's a, there's a very emotional stuff. Um, maybe I, mean, I, I didn't see that one. I, would, I almost would have put that in 2022 myself. It, well, it got released in 2021. It did. No, it did. But um, it's because it's in contention. Was in contention for the Oscar. I don't think it got shortlisted, but it did not. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is, I didn't see it, so maybe if I really like it, that yeah, would yeah. be a 2022 movie. Um, number one is the Beatles get back. I mean, I'm not sure what to say. Um, we'll talk about it later. I'm assuming Fire Day is your number one. Ascension. Ascension. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it. It was very. Um, it really liked. It clearly really liked um, Baraka and Samsara, like the stuff that the stuff that. Um, um, Peter Frick was doing, but I was I I was confused, and so we kind of thought, I would love to do an episode on Ascension, because I would love to kind of talk through well, the, what I'm supposed I'm sure, to I'm think. Sure we'll come back with documentaries like we always do, but something. yeah, I was I would just love to know what like you think of, like what's happening, what I think was happening, kind of compare those things. Yeah, and I think it's I think for me it's just that kinetic energy that carries through it while still being grounded. I mean, Beatles get back is my number two, um, but. It carries this kinetic energy throughout without trying to, you know, it's all done through editing and everything. It, it, there's no talking heads. There's there's just a Deacon score, cut up dialogue and everything put together. Yeah. And I think that just works so well together to just carry itself by mm. just what's given. Mm. Um, and we talked about this. About how, you know, documentaries, especially now I look at them for like doing something new or kind of not necessarily just doing something new, but also trying something that's not commonly considered in vogue. Mm. And I think just a movie that most people kind of consider a little dull, Mm. maybe, or because it just allows its subjects to speak for it. Mm -hmm. um, It works extremely well for me. Yeah, I thought it was, I definitely thought it was interesting. Um, and it was definitely visually interesting. Well, because um, you even said like you'd give it thirty minutes, but it sounds like you finished it. So. I finished it, no. yeah, because um, I just let it go and I just kind of let it wash over me. It's kind of like, it's it's cool because it is like an experience sort of thing. It's like, it is. So my only problem with it again, and this it is, is one of the things one hundred percent Baraka. Well, but so that's if we were comparing it to that, my question with Baraka is, or my question about this is that Baraka has legitimate stakes. So when they go to China and they're showing. Like the people moving around China very, very fast, and they're showing the monk walking down the street very, very slowly, intercut with um, a uh, chicken processing, a chick processing plant where they're burning their fucking beaks off. Like that has a moral and emotional weight to it that Ascension doesn't ever like really kind of approach. Like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think about the bottles. I think being created. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think about, like the textiles being milled. It looks cool. I think it's, but I'm not well, sure what I get. I'm supposed to get at it. For me, it's it's almost like this. Ascension presents itself kind of like this foreign world. It's almost Orwellian aspect at first. It's so very foreign, very unnatural to Western eyes, sort of thing. Uh-huh. But then it kind of and it kind of keeps that way, you know, with like the sex doll scene and everything. But mm-hmm. it kind of eventually kind of hues into the world at large and kind of like the technological over not technological but kind of like the overwhelming arch of like what we're all doing Mm -hmm. kind of ending on some of the sequences of just um the the mining and the um, yeah what's what's the term i'm looking for for you those big things quarry Mm. the quarry sequence 
um, after kind of like the hedonistic high school kid sequence. Sure. Um, I think it goes from like a really kind of alien thing to like a really close thing mm-hmm. and a really global thing. And I find that kind of interesting. I don't necessarily know if it's telling us present things or very direct things, but I think it's evocative of sort of like this overarching kind of emotional feel. And that's what worked for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it was definitely... Uh, it was definitely worth. I'm glad I gave it like its full shake instead of just kind of like tossing it off. But again, it needed to. It needed to kind of. Did you, did you want to toss off a documentary? Toss off. No, I did not want to toss off. Um, Speaking of tossing off, sometimes when you're looking through a camera lens, you might toss off some. What is this? And you oh. might do it in your when you're a director of photography. <laughs> um, that's cinematography. It was perfect. Greg Frazier, Dune, uh-huh. Bruno uh, Del Bonnell, uh-huh. Tragedy Macbeth, uh-huh. Andrew Draws, uh, Palmero, Green Knight, Chung Hoon Chung, um, Last Night in Soho, Ari Wagner, Power of the Dog. Oh, we don't have any crossovers, and it's great. <laughs> um, mine, uh, number five, is um, Hidetoshi um, Shinomiya for Drive My Car. Which is noticeably absent from your list, which either means you hated it or you didn't see it. I saw whatever. Oh, okay. Um, I number... made my screenplay, but it's like... Mm. My number four kind of is... I it was boring. Oh, yeah. My number four is Matthew Lewis, Boiling Point. My number three is... Stur... on my short list. Sterla Branth Groven for Last and First Men. Um, my number two is Jessica Bashir for Faya Day. And my number one is Wyatt Garfield for Nine Days. Because everything they do on nine days is perfect. Yeah, the two so the two last movies I saw in theaters, like being Parallel Mothers and Drive My Car, didn't do really anything for me. Yeah, you didn't like Parallel Mothers. I, no, they're fine. I just think they're just like ugh. I don't know. They're just like. Are you an Almodovar guy? No, not at all. Because you didn't really you weren't like in on Pain and Glory either. Yeah, no, I just I uh, just I don't know. There's too much. trauma in his stuff that I don't mm. connect with at all. Mm. But I, I think it, I think both of those movies are great. I just don't connect with mm. them anyway. Like if I was if my best director category was objectively best directors, like obviously um Hamaguchi, if, is that his name? Yeah. Would have would have shown up in my best director. Mm-hmm. Because there was a real tight control to that, but it felt it, it was almost too tight. Mm. I'm gonna and be, almost felt Can I be synthetic. honest with you? Can I be honest with you? No, I bet if I bet if you watched Drive My Car at home, you would have liked it more. Yeah, no, I felt kind of trapped, and it was it was way too long for me. Because we, we'll get into it later. Because you've got you it's got like it. the one. It's like the opposite of all the other experiences where watching it at home at my own pace, like being able to kind of go backwards a little bit and like. You know, start start ten minutes earlier than like where I stopped at the last time. Like, kind of like picking up a short story or like a novel, really fucking worked. Yeah, it was, it was fucking frust- it was frustrating. Yeah. It was like there's like so many lulls in it, which are aren't they're in- uh, intentional. Yeah, exactly. But it's just like I know what you mean. Yeah, again, this we can add this to the list of things we need to talk about later. What's your number one? Um, <sighs> this is a Macbeth thing. It is Ari Wagner for Power of the Dog. Oh wow. I just think some of those Vista shots work. I think this is the movie where, like, cinematography is doing a lot of... 
not heavy lifting, but cinematography is adding a lot of scope. Setting all the tables yeah. all the time. Yeah. Because like you said, like I think other parts, um, I don't, not necessarily falling down, but I do agree with some of the sound stuff. Um, but I think it's it's adding that sort, sort of sense of scale. And we talked about this in our review. It's the first Netflix movie I saw that was made for Netflix where I'm like, this looks like a fucking movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like cinematically, it looks like a major cinema motion picture. That was also released on a small screen. I know none of these movies have worked until this. I think it's obvious. I think it's actually the opposite uh, phenomenon of what I just described to drive my car with Power of the Dog. Like, I, if I could have made it out to a theater to see Power of the Dog in theaters, I probably would have liked it like a little bit more. Yeah, no, it's 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 surprising that like it kicked my ass as much as it did. On a small screen, which I think is a testament to how great that cinematography yeah. was. Okay, now on to the big ones. Cinematography is a big one, but I, I think cinematography is like that, that, I don't know, that kind of like the twist from, from big one to like the big ones. For mm. us, like I think film editing, lead actors, screenplay directors yeah. are a big ones. Sure. Uh, my film editing nominees are Peter Shiberis for Power of the Dog, Jeffrey Ford and Lee Folsom Boyd for Spider-Man No Way Home, oh. David Lowry, The Green Knight, Michael Taylor and Jeff uh, Bettencourt for Nine Days, Lucian Johnston and Joe Cohen, uh, Ethan Cohen, as I originally wrote, <laughs> for The Tragedy of Macbeth. I have, uh, we have one overlap. Um, I'm surprised you don't have one on here. My number five is um, Azusa Yamazaki for Drive My Car. Um, Andy Jurgensen for Licorice Pizza, number four. Uh, Lee Chattametakul for Memoria. Um, you'll notice a theme. There's like a a theme in my thing is like the movies where like not a lot happens. I feel like you need like the highest quality editor interspersed with like movies where like a ton happens and you need also a high quality editor. Um, like so Memoria has got like what. I mean, how many cuts does it have? Yeah, exactly. Like 50 total? But, like, those 50 have to be fucking right. Right? That's how Absolutely. I feel. Yeah. Um, Lauren Hathaway and Nathan Nugent for uh, The Novice, and then Michael Taylor and Jeff Bettencourt for it. What was the one you were surprised about? That you didn't have Memoria on there. Oh. Yeah. Memoria's done for me. <laughs> this got, experience is over? One, no, it got one award, but, like, it didn't. Oh, really? Me, See? So. That's the thing. I'm totally wrong. Yeah. Um, you want to you want to guess? Macbeth, Lucian Johnston, and Joe Cohen for the tragedy of Macbeth. Um, yeah, like I said, with the sound design and everything, technically wise, everything had to work. Also, by the way, Memoria's also done. You know, other movies also done. Dune. Oh, good. Yeah, no more Dune. It's for my conversation. Technically, Dune's awesome, but like... Dune is very Dune good. Dune Part 2, if it nails what Dune Part 1 did for me, expect for it to be very well, high up. I'm going to be list. very... So they've been having this conversation about like Denny Villeneuve for... like He's going to get nominated for Best Director for Oscar. Which is fine. He's going to Peter... like They're going to wait and Peter Jackson him for Dune Part 2. He'll, we, he will get his director Oscar for if Dune lands, Part 2. Yeah. If it lands. Anyways... Talk really quickly about Tragedy Macbeth. Uh, I watched this movie four times now, and every time I'm shocked that it's over mm. because it moves so it's very fast. fucking fast. Yeah, and to do that with Shakespeare is always impressive. Yep. Best actress. Uh, my nominees. Um, 
I apologize. Liam Algar has Enid Baines and Censor. Yep. Uh, Tessa Thompson has Irene Rennie Redfield in Passing. Yep. Olivia Coleman has Lita fuck? Caruso in Lost Daughter. Uh-huh. Paula Bear has Undine Wubu in Undine. Or Undine. Oh, yeah. Uh, How was Al- that good? I mean, I nominated it for Best Actress. I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's, oh. it's nowhere near as good as... Not Transit. Transit, but she's still good. Mm-hmm. She's fucking great in Transit, too. Um... Alana Haim has Alana Kane in Licorice Pizza. Yeah, we have some overlap here. Uh, my number five is Amelia Jones um, in Coda. Um, I forgot. She's on my short list. Name. Um, Olivia Coleman. I mean, no, I, this is the first year I ever wrote down character names. So Yeah, yeah. Um, it's nice, though. You see how excited I was yeah. to do this. Um, Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter. Um, Naeem Algar in Censor. Um, Dara Campbell um, from Anne at 13,000 Feet. Which is um, a Canadian movie that just got an American release this year, um, and then Alana Heim from Licorice Pizza is my number one because she is not an actress, but she's perfect. She does everything perfectly, and um, her smile is like an electric smile, and it's uncomfortable and awkward, and shouldn't be there sometimes, but also works perfectly for her character. Um, I don't know. I kind of want to say Alana Haim, you got your number one as well, but I'm also going to say Naeem Algar. My winner is Olivia Coleman. Oh, okay. Uh, from Lost Daughter. Yeah. Nice. Um, more than the favorite, like she just sells every part of emotion in this. Um, yeah. I, I, I think I, I said like Jesse Buckley's doing a lot and kind of almost overwhelms it. Like I think in that review, I said almost overwhelms it, but I think Olivia Coleman just does so much good work in that. Mm-hmm. And feeds off of whoever she's playing off of, even like a little rough Dakota Johnson performance. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people would say, like, wow, Dakota Johnson's great in that, but I think she's a little rough, but in the right spot that Dakota Johnson needs to be in. Well, she's good, and I think that's the thing that people are reacting to. Like, holy shit, she's like works, but she's still like Dakota Johnson ish. Sure. Oh yeah, she has some work to do. Maybe she's like her mom. I think she's getting. Um, I I really think she's getting there though. Like between Suspiria yeah, she's, and this, what thirty two? Right, yeah, she's, so. she's she has time. Right, um, no, but Olivia Coleman for this just knocked my socks off. Alana Haim is is easily my number two. Um, she carries that movie for me. I I won't talk about Licorice Pizza again. I it didn't work as well for me mm-hmm. as I wanted and hoped it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think Copper Cooper Hoffman and Alana Haim do. So much heavily lifting in that, and Alana Haim just is such a magnetic fixture. Oh yeah, in that film that it just magnetic is a good word for it. Yep, like they, she's a charisma machine. Yeah, and I think I think we're going to see more of her. Hopefully, <laughs> I would be interested to find out what it's going to be. Like, in what is, what is it? Or was just this just like the perfect you know marriage of movie and director and part and no. everything? Hopefully know. not. Best actor. I feel like we're running through this. We're doing it. Let's do it. My best actors. Anthony Hopkins. Where where is it? Has Anthony. And the father. Winston Duke has Will. Nine days. Andrew Garfield has Jonathan Larson. Tick, tick, boom. Mm -hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch has Phil Burbank. Power of the Dog. Stephen Graham has Andy Jones. There he is. In Boiling Point. There it is. It took you forever. Forever to get to Boiling Point. Forever. Um, my number five is um, Adarsh Gorov for uh, 
as Balram and the White Tiger, completely fantastic. Um, number four is Oscar Isaac in the card counter. Number three is Daniel Kaluuya, is Fred Hampton, and Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, my number two is Denzel Washington and the Tragedy of Beth. He's fucking incredible. He was on he on your list? No, he's my number six. Wow. Um, and then, I mean, my number one is Winston Duke in Nine Days. Denzel Washington wishes he could do Winston Duke in Nine Days. How? Why did Denzel Washington not make your list? Um, I, 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 I don't know because he's doing... He's doing what I expect Macbeth to do, right? I don't think I, so. I, he I mean, replaced... kind, kind of. I mean, he's kind of doing it, but like, I like these just five other performances more. Mm. See, for me, he replaced Anthony Hopkins mm. because I thought there was a progression that I could see to what Denzel was doing. And I thought like his downward... Like, like, like was ball. just completely thrilling, and I thought after a while when I thought of the more I thought about the father, the more I was just kind of like, it's good, but it feels a little bit like a trick. And it, and I kept thinking about King Lear. Remember about King Lear? Yeah, yeah. And how well, like, he's doing so much more work than But remember in King Lear, we just kept making fun of the fact that he didn't seem like he knew what movie he was in. Well, we made that joke with two popes. The two popes too. Well. Yeah. And so I just kept thinking about that shit with the father. Like, I don't know how much acting. And so I just kept, and I kept thinking about like our cry macho conversations. It's like, I'm not sure how much acting is going on here, even though clearly he's acting. You know what I mean? We've seen him talk since then and he's fine and coherent and whatever. But like the way that the film was done and then like this, the nature of his performance, it's like, I don't know. Like, I don't, it doesn't feel good. But Denzel Washington felt I think that was the problem. Watching Anthony Hopkins just be destroyed didn't feel great. Watching Denzel Washington embody this Macbeth character, and it seemed new for me, felt like amazing. It felt like a re- like a just like a and so it's one of those things where like if he sneaks out this Academy Award and he takes it from Will Smith and he takes it from Benedict Cumberbatch, I it will be like an amazing feat, and I think it will be totally justified because I think he's like. Yeah, who does? Denzel Washington. Oh, yeah. I think he's just fantastic. Or Andrew Garfield to that point. I think, and both are on the table. I think it'll just be fantastic. And actually, people are predicting that. That Andrew Garfield's like the upset. He's like the upset waiting to happen here. Hmm. Would you be happy about that? Would I? Imagine yeah. Andrew Garfield wins an Oscar for Chick Chick Boom. <laughs> what do you, who do you think wins my best actor? I, I don't know because I, the person I assumed was going to be your best actor is not him here. Um, Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> it's Andrew Garfield for Tick Good work. Yeah, no. I would love if he wins. This, this, he, he is one hundred percent the person who carries this. Well, obviously, sure. But he's like, if he doesn't work, nothing works. And I think like Olivia Coleman's doing a lot of heavy lifting in the father, and whatnot. But I think if he doesn't work, if he oversells it too much, it doesn't land yeah. at all. And he just has the right emotions at the right times. When he says, like, you tried to Michael um, about the HIV positive thing. And then when, like, he goes in and, like, after singing why and, like, fucking nails his music numbers, mm-hmm. too. Like, every single yeah. one of them is nailed. And he's like, I 
you know, I looked up this thing, blah, 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 for, like, friends in need. And he's just like, get in here. You look like shit. And he's like, I'm so cold. Like, it's always so energetic and, and, and fran- frantic and not frantic, but, like, it has so much energy. He's so full of life. Life, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and that's what that movie's trying to sell is Jonathan Larson was full of life. Mm-hmm. And he does it. Mm-hmm. He does it in spades. Um, Good on you, Andrew Garfield. Yeah. So I was, if I was, was going to rank those, my number two would be Duke. Mm-hmm. Um, my number three would be Cumberbatch. Yeah. I like Cumberbatch a lot. I like, like Cumberbatch him too. Cumberbatch is selling that villain. He sells that villain so well, and those the interaction between those two is a lot. I know um, he is, but he's just like so better at Cumberbatch. Then my number my number four, yeah, exactly. But he's he can't do accents. I know he can't do accents, but he can act. Um, my number four is Hopkins, mm-hmm. and my number five is Graham. But all five, the, this was one of the hardest categories for me mm. this year. Best adapted screenplay. My nominees: Jane Campion. I'm excited for the next category, by the way, because it's a Fucking nightmare. <laughs> Just okay. when you see like what I nominated. Go ahead. Uh, best adapted screenplay: Jane Campion, Power of the Dog, Rebecca Hall, Passing, David Lowry, The Green Knight, uh, Florian Zeller, and Christopher Hampton, The Father, Maggie Gyllenhaal, The Lost Dog. Oh wow, well, okay. Um, mine number five is The White Tiger, uh, Raman Bahar- uh, Barani. Um, number four is Power of the Dog. Number three is The Green Knight. Number two is Nightmare Alley. Which benefited from a reading of the book, so I, I stopped. It's it's so boring. It's very boring. Past like I really the carnival part to get like exciting, it right? Just doesn't. So he the work that they did. To, who, who wrote that? Um, oh, I read it then. Uh, William Lindsay Gresham. Okay. Um, so Guillermo did not have any. Oh, oh, you mean the adapted screenplay? Yeah, it was oh, Guillermo del Toro yeah, yeah. and Kim Morgan. Okay. Yeah. Um, William Lindsay Gresham wrote the novel. Wrote the novel, yeah, yeah. The work that they had to do to beat that into a shape that like could be a movie. Um, I mean, so it's it's like roughly the same thing, but everything's so like I don't know. It's so hateful in the William Lindsay Gresham novel, and like it's focused more on just like hating religion and like hating everything yeah. than it is on like narrative. Um, and so there's stuff that happened in. And this is like a, this never happens to me. There's stuff that happened in the book that doesn't happen in the movie, and like he gets so many points for not allowing some of that stuff to happen in the movie. Absolutely, and would, the only reason this doesn't show up in my nominations, and I think it probably would have knocked out this would have knocked out Rebecca Hall's passing. Uh huh. Um, is I feel that ending is telegraphed so perfectly with the speech and then actually then show the ending, which people love. Like, people right. love the Tim Blake Nelson, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bradley Cooper geek scene, but mm-hmm. I'm like, this is unnecessary. Well, so that's the thing. So the movie... I feel, I feel it's like talking down to me as a viewer. Absolutely. Almost. The movie is a better novel than the novel is a novel. Yeah. And so, like, that stuff works for me. And again, I've, I'm very conflicted about Nightmare Alley. It definitely doesn't show up anymore on my lists. But, like... Um, it does not show up anymore on my list either. Oh, well, then I'm very wrong on one of my lists. Um, <laughs> it um, so he so Guillermo del Toro took the novel and made a better novel out of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which I think is kind of fascinating. My number one is Drive My Car. Um, they took a like a twenty page Haruki Murakami Which short I, story. I've never read that story, but and it's fine. It's a fine story, and they made this completely like transcendent piece of like 
narrative film out of it. And That's really whilst, tough to watch in but one while thing. simultaneously making it very Murakami. I do want to do an episode on that, but yeah. I want I want to like be able to watch it again. Yeah, um, I, I'll just say like last thing is that they the stories that they tell inside of the story. That's how Murakami writes, and yeah. how those stories, like the nature of those stories, is how Murakami are stories that Murakami would tell. Um, so, like the, what the wife is telling, um, and I don't have any of the. But the wife is telling the husband after sex um, in the beginning of the movie, and then what, like her, her um, fucking um, the guy she's cheating on her husband with that ends up that's Vanya and the tea, thing. Right? I forget um, his name. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, what he says, guy. that's so Murakami. They, they, they boiled down the essence of Murakami and expanded it into like a Murakami novel because you know novels are so long. You know what's interesting about this movie too when I watched it, and, and this is maybe a little prejudice coming in with me. Um, when I was watching this going like, man, this director and this way of storytelling, I'd rather see this Murakami. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what I think. This is why I talk about. Or this is what I think about when I think about running. Mm. Amir what we talk about, when we talk about running. Yeah, um, like the entire time, like because it it does feel like there's those moments in that movie that kind of feel like they're fleshing things out for too long, or kind of like grinding the wheels. But they're and maybe yeah. Once again, sitting in one sitting. Like but I think they're not the cause. I so it's and I'm this is not like a thing. I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying like you should read more Murakami or I don't even know how much Murakami you've read. Not but like I'm rereading Wind Up Bird Chronicle right now and which I haven't one um I've read it once. 1Q84 which is like 1000 page book. Like the longer the Murakami like the better for me. This stuff is what he does in the middle of his books where he's just like I'm going to tell you this story out of nothing and I'm gonna hope I'm gonna hope that you stick around long enough well, in the book to like allow this to tie itself together. I've ever told you like if we're to ever do a pivotal books this is what I talk about when I talk about running is probably in my top 20 Mm-mm. yeah that's like you never really interesting so I don't know I drive my car is something I'm gonna have to like keep reevaluating for a while yeah I will be interested to do that episode when we do it yeah, whenever it comes out finally on um like a month. Yeah. That would be nice if he I mean he's got to get a director nomination. Oh, he's going to. He's I gonna, mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I think that gets a picture nomination too. I don't think it's going to get a picture. I think he's going to get a director. No, I think it will get both. You think so? I just think they're too afraid of leaving being the Ricardos out. <laughs> um Oh, we're, we have to do original now. Well, no, I have to tell you my winner. Oh, what's your winner? Screenplay. Do you I, a, I don't know. I forgot what it was. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Um, huh. Daughter. I, I think that that script works in so many levels. It, it ebbs and flows in the way it needs to. I don't think there's much vacant space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the other... I think It and Father are the two movies that require the most scripting. Mm-hmm. Basically, like they're the ones that rely the most on their screenplay, but mm-hmm. I think there's so much more. There's so many coalescing factors in um, Lost Daughter that aren't there in The Father. Like The Father's can be can really tight mm-hmm. and really narrow. Yeah. Um, but The Lost Daughter needs so much energy and needs so much coming from many sources, and I think it just works. Yeah, yeah. From the scripting level, it was on my list for like a long time, and then Drive My Car. I think Drive My Car kind of kicked it off. All right, original. <laughs> okay. 
Do you want me to go first? Because no, I've no, got a list good. that I'm comfortable with. Uh, that, no, I was going to do okay. the because it's a lot of fun. Um, Edson Oda, Nine Days. Yep. Uh, Philip Barantina and James Cummings for Boiling Point. I know technically it's an adapted screenplay, but it's, it's his, his own thing. It's his screenplay, yeah. And it was made into a feature. Yep. The reason I put The Father there, changing mediums. They're both mm-hmm. movies. Uh, James Samuel and Bose uh, Yakin for The Harder They Fall. Mm. And Ed Solomon, No Sudden Moves. Oh, yeah. And Kristen Wiig and Amy uh, Mumolo for Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Jeez. <laughs> Barb and Star? Remember that movie? I mean, Jesus I do. I, was, I, I, gave um, I have... Isn't that like the most fucked up, weird original screen? My number five is... Um, I feel like you're going to... I feel like this is one of those situations where like I'm going to say some things and you're going to be like, God damn it. So my number five is um, Prano Bailey Bond and Anthony Fletcher for Censor, which mm-hmm. is a great screenplay. You think Barb and Stars is a better screenplay than Censor? I think it's... I, it, I had a little more fun with it. Okay. Um, so that No, I'm, definitely. I 100% had... Uh, Censor was my number six, yeah. All right. I'm way off on my list then. Um, Mike Mills, come on, come on. Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. We were talking about like short stories and like literature before. That's like a short story movie. I just completely forgot about Minari. Um, Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's my number two, and Nine Days, Ed is my number one. I'm assuming Ed Zenoda wins. Oh, yeah, Ed wins. Yeah. <laughs> With everything else on your list, I'm assuming Ed Zenoda takes that. Yeah, we'll talk about Nine Days. Yeah. There you go. I mean, the screenplay is a part of the longer Okay. Director! The second to last one. All right, go ahead. Original screenplay is my weirdo one. Now we get back to normal. <laughs> my weirdo one. Joe Cohen, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Ed Zenoda, Nine Days. Jane Campion, Power of the Dog. David Lowry, The Green Knight. Lynn Manuel Miranda, Tick, Tick, Boom. Isn't that six? No. That's five? Joe Cohen, Ed Zenoda, Jane Campion, David Lowry, Lynn Manuel Miranda. Oh, okay. I don't know why I thought you would put another one in there. Um, my number five is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza. My number four is A Peach Pong We Are Sethical for Memoria. My number three is Lauren Hathaway for The Novice. My number two is Ryosuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car. And number one is my best friend in the whole world, Ed Zenoda. Well, wait till he makes them really. Gotta wait. I hope I hope he doesn't make any more movies. <laughs> He's just like I'm done. This, this has been fun. That'd I won the Sundance Award, and now I'm peacing out. Good. That's how you do it. I'm assuming you. I'm assuming Joel Cohen takes this one. Jane Campion, <gasps> Power of the Dog. Wow. Technically, so such tight control, such perfection in terms of directing or actors, in terms of the visuals of what you're seeing. It's. It's on my top 10, but it's lower. I will admit that. But mm. I cannot at all deny that she fucking controlled the shit out of this movie. Hmm. And I think she's going to win Best Director. Oh, Oscars. she's already won. 100%. It. So I think it's, I think it's fair. I, I usually am not a fan of that type of control, but it just, I don't know. It, just, it, it felt nice to have a Netflix movie. Where clearly they threw money at somebody, and she was like, "Yeah, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm going to do what I do. Yeah, fucking awesome at it. It's a very, very, very good movie. It was it uh, very honestly my number eleven. Yeah, we're, I mean it's it's in my top ten. Yeah, so we'll, um, we'll talk about it there, but yeah. it's, it's lower. But I this is a it's big. Like really, if I was being fair, this is probably my number like best movies of the year, best films like Power of the, the Dog, like, Power of the Dog, 
by damn definition has to be my number one but when we do these like i have to put like my own personal feeling in there mm-hmm. um but there's there's absolutely no way in which like all of like 85 percent of that is jane campion i think mm. you could fit other people into those roles and you get the same movie yeah be I interesting i'd be interested to see it so i'd be interested to see it because i think kirsten dunst is harvey Keitel as phil well <laughs> <laughs> that would be so funny. Like Harvey Keitel now as Phil, 50 years older than his brother. <laughs> 60, no, Harvey Keitel as Phil and Joe Pesci in the Jesse Plemons role. No, and no. and no, go, Kirsten Dunst. Go even crazier. Just be like, um, I don't know, like uh, Asia Butterfield as the brother. Terrific. And Kristen Dunst still. <laughs> and then, um, you know, you get... <laughs> You get Peter. Uh, I'm as, sorry, I'm just remaking the Irishman Peter, as Power you get of the Peter Dark. acted by, I don't know, uh, gosh, uh, Terrence Stamp. <laughs> Kristen Dunst. No, Udo Kier. Yeah, Udo Kier. Kier. <laughs> he, he was showing up on people's <laughs> lists for a while. Um, we'll be right back with our top 10 films of the year. 